I'm sure there's a great deal of switching back and forth, but I think more often than not, bears are tops, uh, unless they happen to be power bottoms. What's a power bottom? A power bottom is a bottom that is capable of receiving an enormous amount of power. Actually, Mac, you got it backwards. You see, a power bottom's actually generating all the power by doing most of the work. Does the power have to do with the size or the strength of the bottom? Now, Dennis, I've heard that speed has something to do with it. Speed has everything to do with it. You see, the speed of the bottom informs the top how much pressure he's supposed to apply. Speed's the name of the game. Right, buddy? You are now listening to the Enter VR podcast. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jason Story. Jason is the founder at Darker Smile. Um, does it is it Darker Smile VR or just Darker Smile? Just Darker Smile. Okay, cool. And uh, he's also worked as a as a dev at, um, on Dispatch and Coloss um, that were both released on the Oculus Store, and were they also on Steam? Uh, I don't think so. They're on. They're on all the the Oculus headsets. So they're on the from the the Go, the Gear, and the Rift. Okay, cool. Well, Jason, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, it's a long time no talk. I guess I, I haven't know. seen you since uh, OC two. It's a while ago. Yeah, was that the one where um, and at the beach house where like I gave Cymatic Bruce a huge hug because I was so high on edibles <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Remember that yeah. one? That was that one. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, oh, that was that one. Yeah, I was so I was so embarrassed. The next day, I was like, "Man, what was I doing? I was just giving people hugs." <laughs> uh, don't don't worry. You could have been worse. I remember um, nearing the end of the event, uh, Olivier got so drunk he was he used a shower head like a phone and was spraying water into his ear. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not gonna name names, but I know. Uh, there were there was a one a, a couple people that just like that marijuana edibles it was like their first time trying the California marijuana edibles, and um and I remember like seeing a lot of puke on the floor and just feeling really bad because <laughs> I was like oh no they weren't ready they were they're never ready for California edibles it's just and and yeah. that was before legalization happened now that legalization happened they capped it like they like you go to the dispensary any dispensary in California and like. You can't get as potent edibles as you used to, actually. Um, and so, yeah, it's safe now. <laughs> it's safe to try them now <laughs> for those who are traumatized. Oh, man. Yeah, what a time. What a, what a crazy yeah, it's, time. It's also it's, it's worth, it's, it's worth noting as well that a lot of people, some people actually didn't realize. I remember there were some people who were just like taking handfuls. And it's like, well, calm down there, buddy. That's the, <laughs> this is your first time. They're like, so they're like first time what? And so there was a, a bit of a grace period for some of that as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, that's all, uh, all good though. Other than other than a few surprises, it was it was all good. I, I remember in particular, me and one person who I'm not going to mention were on the roof because the, the roof was um you know open like a open to the sky and you yeah. could there was um kind of reclining wooden benches and I remember uh, lying there and waking up in the morning and being covered in dew and this is the first time i'd ever experienced like proper morning dew like actually sticky sappy sort of dew and so waking up entirely covered in it was sort of a, an interesting experience oh <laughs> nice yeah that rooftop was dope that whole that whole beach house setup was honestly 
oh god what a good it was we were at the right place at the right time um back then and, I, I do. I do want to publicly apologize to all the people who were there with us, though, because um, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we, we divvied up rooms for who stays in which room, and um, I, I snore quite badly. So uh, I, I kind of noticed after a while that the people who were due to be in the room with me all sort of moved on, and I ended up having a room that probably could have fit four people or three people to myself because I was apparently that bad. So I apologize. <laughs> Uh, that's you know, kind of why that's why later on during the, the during the stay I, I started moving onto the roof because I wanted to sort of let people sleep in peace. Oh, you're such a gentleman. I actually now that we're we're on the topics of apologies, I should probably apologize to Graham from VR chat for eating his bread. I'm so sorry, Graham. I didn't mean to eat your bread. That's all I know that's all you bought. <laughs> that's all you could afford at the time back then. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um but hopefully hopefully we can um look past that now. But yeah. It was a uh, what a time. It was crazy. Yeah, and 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 I wonder like what ha- what has happened to VR if from your perspective since since those times since since was it three years ago four years ago now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's been an interesting it's been an interesting time for me for that because. Um in a weird way, it was a lot of us were sort of still the indies, and and I was uh, I was an Irish lad in the middle of nowhere who uh, basically was chatting away on the forums, but didn't really. I wasn't part of the whole hype of it all, you know. There's if if you're in LA or you're even if you're in London, there, there's a little bit of a fervor around it, and there was a lot of people sort of who could meet, go to meetups and sort of test things. I was completely alone. There was nobody. There's, there was one other. You know, David Whelan in Ireland was the only other person, and he was far enough away that it wasn't really. It's not like we'd have meetups or anything, but there wasn't much of a, a scene for VR. You know, so mm. I kind of uh, I, I went to OC very much as sort of this was a bit new to me, and everything was a little bit sort of dramatic. And and since then, in an odd way, I've gone the other end of it. Is that I I ended up getting an opportunity to quit my job and start contracting full time and that did well enough that I ended up basically starting my own VR contracting business. Nice. Wow. So, yeah. So, and, and the funny thing is, when you do that, you don't actually, you're now too busy to sort of get involved in the social scene as much. So, I sort of almost, in a weird way, the more I got into it, the less I got into it because I, I stopped playing the experiences as much and I wasn't able to go to as many events because I was actually just busy. <laughs> so, it was a weird, it's, for me, it was a very weird time because I missed a lot of the, the hype then because I was just, you know, working on things. Yeah, you were, well, you were making stuff happen. I mean, that's a whole another. You were you went from one side of the trenches to the other, basically. And yeah, and and what was that? What was your experience doing that? Um, going that route. Yeah, it was. To be honest, it was interesting because, uh, like, the whole the whole because I suppose I'll give you a backstory, so sort yeah. of a bit of context is um so I'm, I'm a software developer by trade and and i've i've worked in the, the beauty of software is that you if, if if you're a software developer you can work in pretty much anything and do any because the, everything needs software mm-hmm. and, and by that i really do mean it because the first job i had out of college was i worked in a japanese bank in their internal software department where they worked on on things like payment transfers and all sorts of stuff and then from there i moved on to working on um, supermarkets, uh, data analytics and stuff. And from there, I did websites and then some other company, I did mobile apps. And so I'd, I'd sort of touched on a lot of aspects of software development. And so and they're kind of varying different companies and they're, you know, you can work on anything. And so I was only ever doing VR as a hobby. And I sort of 
back to the the rift and you know started developing for it and it was just really cool and all that but going into the industry was still very like even in, in a weird i don't know if they showbiz because it sounds a bit gauche but I, I mean just in general i hadn't worked in a creative field i'd worked in a very technical field and everything i'd done was technical work mm-hmm. and uh but my sort of first entry into proper vr stuff was um when i started working on coloss which was the we, we won a, a an award for the gear vr jam if anyone remembers that with nick Pitt, it was right? um that's the one yeah who's yeah. actually still work with he's still my uh partner in crime on a lot of these projects Shout out to nick yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he's uh he's, he's the one that uh, i actually worked on dispatch with as well so from there that was my first thing and it was going from working on back-end systems and things to working on something that's actually very visual and artistic and getting to work with artistic people was really cool because I could produce something and actually put a headset on someone and say, try this out, I worked on it, you know? Wow. You can't really turn to a banking back-end system and go, look, make a transfer, see, I did that. That's that's how that works. It's not really the same effect, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like, look at me, I'm a god. I, look at what I can make. Yeah, and it's like, oh, wow, I'm a, how did you do this? I mean, for, for a lot, like... For a lot of people, I would say like 95% of the population, it's magic. How, however the fuck you did, even if it's dropping a unity, unity terrain and like, you know, making a few cubes twirl in space, like, like for a lot of people still, it's like, it's crazy. It's, it's magic. It's, um, and so well, it was what? for me too. Yeah. Like I was, I was the same. Like I remember, um, one of the first demos I tried was this really ridiculous game jam game and it wasn't for any of the big ones. It was just somebody doing some random game jam. And I think it was called, it was just like Fire VR or something. It was it was a really silly little demo. Yeah. And it was it was made in like a 24-hour jam. And it was using uh, motion controllers, which again at the time was the Hydra, because there wasn't anything else. Uh, and you were you threw cubes. And it was, looking at it now, I could spin it out in four hours. But at the time, I played this thing for hours. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so I, de- I definitely can relate to the, um, the, the, the feeling of awe at someone literally creating a world from scratch. Because it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a cool feeling. I want to go back to the moment you got bit by the VR bug, and I want to know something. I'm noticing a sort of a, a pattern, or a pattern in me. I'm not. I'm not really. I'm not sure what the pattern. It's still nebulous. What I'm trying to figure out here, but like, I keep asking this question. It's like, um, when you got bit by the VR bug, why did you get bit by it and others didn't? What did you see that others didn't at the time? you know around people around you and like i ask people all over the world i'm starting to try to ask as many people i know around the world uh, this question and it's just like uh and it's a sort of like a fascinating thing like what is this universal thing that we all have in common that like makes us go like oh of course this is where it's going but not but why doesn't everybody else see what i'm saying like so yeah i, I think I think I might be a little bit of an outlier. I don't know if it's it's going to be the the main reason, but for me, it's a bit selfish. It was um, as as you as you rightly put it, it, it. There's a thing about creation that makes you feel a bit godlike, and um, I, I kind of think you almost have to be a bit of an egomaniac to be a developer because you're basically creating things from scratch. And there's a certain the problem I've always had is it's never very visual, and so I could create something, and like even even AI, for example, you could take something where you could program a bunch of cubes to move around and effectively make your own little mini um, RTS or something. You could have a bunch of entities that'll eat something from a tree and they go over here and then deliver some stuff. And they're basically, you, you can look at that and go, I made that. It's a bunch of little living entities that are moving around and that's really cool. But you can't really engage with that because you're capped by your ability as an artist, which basically is non-existent for a lot of us developers. It's cubes. So 
there's something about VR where even cubes start to take on a bit of a magical form. You know, you can put a cube in, and, and the sense of scale immediately makes something impressive. So, for me, it was. I, I used to be able to make something on a computer and have someone use it, and that's cool. But now I could literally make a world and put someone in it. And there was a sense of just awe to that, that just knowing – just enough programming that I could put a bunch of cubes down. And like that's why the very first demo I ever made uh, myself was I made a telekinesis demo where you could basically pick up and throw things. And, and you know, I had destructible terrain and stuff. It was the very first thing I ever made in Unity because I wanted that godlike power and I wanted to make that world myself. And so for me it was – I immediately saw – this thing of if you can step into a world it means you can put someone in a world which means you can create something and have someone experience what it is you want them to experience so you've got this sense of getting a message across in this creative way that no amount of 2d painting or, or programming simple boxes moving around the screen will ever do so that i immediately saw that and thought i, I need to make something <laughs> it just has to happen yeah. How did the people around you react to this first introduction of VR from you, right? And then how how have their views changed over time? And how has that, uh, how have their views, how has their influence, if at all, has that, has that had an influence in you in terms of like your work or your ethics? Or, you know, I, I wonder, like, uh, I, I sometimes wonder, like, um, <clears throat> if the imposter syndrome... Um, comes from not not come what i'm wondering is where does the imposter syndrome come from and i wonder like if a lot of times comes from like pe you know people around you <laughs> who are like what are you doing what are you, what are you who do you think you are you go go find a go get a regular job and you're like and you're like oh you're right you know how how can i but i wonder like what was your how did people around you react um to your well, well, well they were uh yeah, they they were not that impressed. In fact, to make it kind of more contrasting for me, like I said, I worked in a in a Japanese bank, and so I worked in. So so picture this: when you picture developers, there's sort of the general joke about you're wearing you know sweaty t-shirts in a dungeony area with you know posters on the wall, and it's all you're, you're sneakily playing video games when the bosses aren't looking. Well, for my first proper programming job, it was you know the japan takes their companies very seriously and so mm. i had to wear a suit to work every day so even as a programmer sitting in my desk it was in a big cubicle area and i had i had a desk with like and you couldn't really customize your desk too much it was very much you sit at your desk you do your job what so what year was this oh my god whoa oh uh, this is this is uh that's why like i can't even remember the dates now but basically the, the the point is that it was it was a bit regimented now the people weren't because we're talking about ireland here and uh, anyone who's uh who's gone drinking with an irish person knows that we're we're very hard to pin down even if you're wearing a suit but we so, so we were you know we had a lot of fun and we were it was it was a good group of people but the business culture was very much clinical and so the kinds of people that are drawn to that work were kind of clinical and, and older in general so long story short i was the youngest in the office and you've all these people who are you know late 30s early 40s who have a family and kids and one day i come into work and i'm like i just backed this thing on kickstarter it's a vr headset and they all kind of look at me with a bit of a smirk going you know okay that's the that's the kid in the office a bit optimistic on something and so over the next because because as those of us who backed it early know there was a long wait between backing it and getting it especially if you're not in america and you have to wait till the end of the delivery trail and so i had a long time to try to sell this idea <laughs> and i did i did for about i'd say five months 
I was constantly going, no, no, trust me, it's a big deal. It's a, think about it, it's just the idea of VR and you know that's it's tracking and it's all that kind of stuff. And I was and I was on the forums, I was learning all the jargon despite having not tried it yet. And so I remember the day it arrived too. And I remember it arrives sort of at my office. But it arrives at about eleven AM. So I have my I have my kit my kit here beside me and I'm just staring at my computer so angrily because I have to sit here for the whole day as I look at the box and there's nothing I can do and it's just so for So I, I remember then over the span of the next um six to eight months I was I was building demos and trying stuff. And I, I got a few people from the office to try it and even the people who tried it, it's as funny as you mentioned, they didn't really bite that bug for a lot of people nobody a few people saw some potential but even the people i showed it to kind of went this is cool but it's going to be relegated to sort of a bit of a side hobby thing and it wasn't until the facebook acquisition because again being a bank people are very money oriented when i could say millions there's millions i told you this i told you this six months ago this was going to be a big deal and now millions are in the pipeline for how this is you know yeah yeah sorry billions so i remember i was really that was the moment where I kind of they started to look at me and said, "Okay, he's he's onto something here." And so, <laughs> uh, but but again, it's, it was a hard sell. It was it was a very hard thing to do to get people to to kind of be impressed by the idea. And it, it sort of as as we know as we went through it is that if if you were if you were there in the early days of it, every year someone said, "This is the year of VR," and you you had to go through the rigmarole of of assuming it's going to be the time everyone picks it up and starts being excited by it. And quite frankly, it just didn't happen year after year. It was the the, the community itself was excited, but it didn't really hit the mainstream it just didn't really catch on at least to the the level we wanted it to you know jason i don't know about you but i'm telling you this year is the year of vr i know it's the good, end of good. the year <laughs> i know we, but we still have time we still have time to do some catching up i'm telling you these holiday sales are coming in hot samsung odysseys for sale at 300 bucks dude well that astro too man that astro looks the the, the astro vr thing for psvr that looks pretty good that and looks PSVR like a fun little yeah. for 200 bucks too yeah I'm and uh, as sony or samsung at all by the way <laughs> i'm just saying and as someone deal. who's been playing with the the um uh the quest for some time now i think i'm allowed to say that now is it's i honestly think i i've even as someone who's in vr who's been really into it. I've had people come to me and say, oh, what VR headset should I get if I'm going to get into it? And I always have to sort of say, well, I, I really don't recommend you get one yet. Knowing these people aren't gamers, they don't have a gaming PC and that kind of thing. And they're like, what about these mobile ones? And they're like, I always have to kind of go, just just ignore those. They're not really, they're not really the thing. And even the Go, which is a, a very good candidate for maybe, maybe being that first sort of good product, the, the lack of controllers and just six off controllers in general just made me look at it and go the screen in the go was one of the best screens i tried and especially for a mobile device it was amazing but it just didn't it wasn't good enough it was, it was good for like you're going on a plane and you want to watch netflix or something great but i can honestly say having played with the quest now the quest is the first time i've i've said to people this is the one you want to get if you're if you're going to hit the mainstream get into vr the quest is the one it's it's good enough for good experience like i played super hot on it as full 360 in a room and it works beautifully like it's, it's amazing like you can't how do you beat that where you can just take this headset these controllers go to any space and just say put this on play super hot you don't need a computer you don't need to set things up this is the thing i think that's going to start to really get some momentum behind it so you might be right you might act you might be right i um i like you because you are a skeptic and you don't give a fuck about what 
to say uh, that's on your mind. So I want to know, like, despite all that, like, what is the one thing that the Oculus Quest you think like could improve on that you feel like, all right, if they did this one thing better, then they have even a better chance. Like, so what? Well, my my problem has always my my problem has always been power. I always I've I've always been angry at the fact that I just I if if you go back to the Rev VR days, Rev VR podcast. He during the announcement of the Gear VR, we had a had a very contentious podcast where we both said, "Is this going to change VR?" And this was like before it was even announced. The first mobile VR headset it's a big deal, and we had a, a good hour and a half rant about, "Is this?" And I was on the side of, "This is rubbish. <laughs> this is horrible." And I just I I'm not on board with the idea of mobile VR. I just don't get it. I think VR is. All you're doing is you're pandering to lowest common denominator and you're removing the ability to have big dramatic experiences. If like the last thing, I, I just envisioned this idea of the mobile app store and just weeped at the idea of VR, you know, here lies VR, 50 million Flappy Bird clones. And it's just, it was a sad concept to me that it might be the direction we're going. And um, to be honest, in my opinion, the, it, the the gear ended up being fairly benign. Like it wasn't bad it just wasn't it didn't really do much it, it, it was it was good for demoing and actually as a as a contractor it was a great tool for me because i could make a small experience bring it to a client and say put this on your face there you go that's vr if you hadn't tried it i can I, it was really good as a business tool but i'd never recommended a single person buy one even people who had the phones i wasn't really because it just it didn't seem like it was worth it uh and so that's why i i definitely it is with a caveat that I say, I actually do think mobile VR is hitting the point where it's palatable for mainstream. And I don't mean as mobile games. I'm not saying that you're going to get a cheapened experience. The fact that I played Superhot, which I think is a fairly good example of a fully fleshed out VR experience. And that's kind of why I use that as an example, because that is like, ideally you want total recall, right? You want like the fully super dramatic visuals and explosions and stuff. But Superhot gets you there. You get 90% of that experience and it's, you know, fun and engaging and it's, you can have anyone try it. I mean, all we need now is something like Beat Saber on it and I'm golden. But my point anyway with all of that is that the only thing missing is that there is still a cap. There's still an inherent limit to how good you can make something on a mobile device. And until, until they're willing to go a little bit more prosumer and we get to the point where you can have something that's more that's more on par with a rift level of what you can do so i know that's a hard thing to say because we're basically going to double the size of the headset and needs more processing power and you've got more risks of heat and all this kind of other issues but until we can get a computer level experience on a mobile headset it's still it's not going to do it for me but so that's my one complaint but i think that's going to take a while right to get to that I would have thought so, but I don't know, man. Like things are changing very fast. We've gotten, um, we're, we're getting uh, flexible screens soon. We've got phones now have um, fingerprint scanners underneath the screens. We're getting to the point where we've got um, foveated rendering is on the horizon. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. We've got mobile wireless VR. I remember us discussing wireless VR, and there was article after article saying why it's not likely to happen in the next ten years because there's just too much you know, processing required and too much bandwidth that you're just not going to see it as a viable option. And we have it. It's, 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 and if you've tried it, it's flawless. Like there's not, yeah. there is, there is latency, but not latency to the point where you'd ever have an issue with it. So if we can get to the point where what I thought was the, one of the most unlikely scenarios of a wireless PC quality VR headset, I'm not that skeptical anymore. I think for specifically getting PC quality, you might need a box somewhere in the corner that does a lot of the work for you, but I think we can get to the point we can have a fully, 
um, sort of Rift or uh, Vive experience where you don't need the setup and the sensors. You can bring something that's akin to like a, a laptop with like maybe an external graphics card, throw the whole thing in the corner and then draw your space and just off you go. I think we can we can get closer to the quick setup of a mobile setup with the power of a PC. And I think we could probably do it in the next four years, which isn't that long in PC terms, you know? Yeah. And this, I think that if Quest goes well, then it's going to set a new standard for mobile and, yeah, for mobile VR. Because <laughs> people are going to be like, well, why should I get a Gear VR or anything by or a car or anything when this thing is doing all those things plus plus more with like six six degrees of freedom both head head and hands like that's going to be the new standard i don't see and and what makes me excited about that is that okay well like how will how will other companies iterate on that you know what will samsung's version of that look like what will microsoft samsung version of look of that look like if if Quest is successful and it's it's found to, uh, there for there to like be a, a genuine market, then you know you would think that the others would soon to you know would soon follow and 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 trying to establish themselves. So I'm I'm, I'm almost certain it will, and, and you know why? It's going actually nothing to do with the other stuff we mentioned. I think the Quest is going to be successful, not because it's a good headset, not because it's got the the you know the six three freedom controllers, none of that stuff. It's it's something that's often underlooked in, in this kind of thing is that if if you were playing on a Gear VR or even a Rift, there is it, it's it's the argument of why do people still have consoles in this day and age. It is that people people who aren't, you know, fanatically PC master race will accept that there is a time when a console is better than a PC. There's a there's a viable reason to have both. And the reason why is there's simply something about the setup. Something about being able to just sit down after a long day of work, press a button and start playing. And there's something about the Rift and the the Vive is they both have an inherent setup cost. And that's kind of why I think this idea of full-bodied suited stuff, as much as I I love it and I think I actually have uh, Perception Neuron and a bunch of other toys which are great fun, I don't use them. I have a lot of gimmicky toys that I've picked up over the years for VR. And there's just something, there's a mental barrier to just getting involved in VR and you actually you don't want to play games sometimes because it's just it feels like work which is a horrible thing to say but it's true and it's why the Wii you've got so many everyone's history of the Wii is it's a great product but how many times were people sitting on a couch just waving their arm as opposed to engaging with it standing up like you're supposed to because that's not how people do things and so the thing about the Quest is more than any other VR headset up to this point is it's it's just go like you just use it it just works and by that i really mean until you've tried it it's, it's one thing that's really cool about it is you put the headset on you hold the controllers and you just draw a box around your feet and that's your play space and then you just play it and the idea of having any things it, mem- it remembers i think up to three or four locations as well so you can do it once in your setup so the idea is if you want to play a full-bodied you know again super hot-esque experience you just put it on you press a button and there you go you don't have to take your phone out clip it in you don't have to you know boot up steam and sort through your library you don't have to run external anything you don't have to swap hdmi cables you just press it and play and i think that 
barrier to entry removal is going to make it the kind of thing where you could be sitting at a coffee shop talking to somebody and talking about VR and they say they never tried it and you can just reach in your bag, hand them a thing and they can just quickly try it. Like you don't have to give them the full experience, but you could say here, quickly try, just look at the Netflix thing. There you go. Just watch and you can just, you can immediately demo it to somebody without all of the engagement required to set it up and sort of, you know, put it on your head, make sure the FOV is right, you know, put the lens separate, all the kind of, you just, just go. Like it just works. And I think that's so overlooked as how valuable that's going to be in kind of mass adoption. Yeah, I am curious to see how Oculus is going to sort of uh, entice developers and encourage developers to like develop for it and and, and work around its limitations. Because I feel like a lot, I don't know, I, I just want to, my curiosity lies in like, all right, so what content are you coming out with? Like, what am I going to be able to play? Super Hot is cool, but I already played it on PSVR. Um, so I want to know, like, show me something new, <laughs> something I haven't seen before. You know, I'm just, I'm just like, uh, I'm excited for Quest. I'm excited, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not particularly, because I'm fucking crazy and I've been in VR for so long. Like, um, I'm not the mainstream consumer. I'm more of the kind of person that wants like more immersion like full body tracking like eye tracking like you know like all like um tesla suit (laughs) integration like all that stuff like i want to be closer and closer than the matrix and so for me i'm excited that the mainstream will have this introductory product and i'm curious to see how oculus is going to like massage you know the developer base to get in front of people um and what kind of content that that that's something I'm, I'm very interested in do you have any thoughts on that or yeah I, I i don't think you're the only one there i think i, I can honestly say if uh, back back when i did the the left-handed vr podcast it was kind of commented on a few times how if you go from the first episode up to whatever we were 100 and something you, you there's a there's a very audible decline in my enthusiasm over the span of a year and a half of talking about VR. And the truth is, it comes down to exactly what you said, which is content. Content is king. It's 100% true. And no matter how good, they could literally come out with this one-button Iron Man suit that wraps around your body and gives you full VR. And if the only thing you can play on it is super hot again, it's not, you don't care. It doesn't matter how cool the tech is. You need some good experience to play. And the truth is, we've not cracked that yet. I don't think we've found that first like even even for me i mean i i can honestly say if you if you polled most vr developers they don't play vr games they don't even like uh, to be honest when people tell me they're a developer too they're like oh cool what have you tried i said oh i have to then go and get their thing and try it they like the back in the back in the old days it would have been a case of oh you're the guy who made that thing and i would have already played it because any new bit of content was gold and i'd try it now it's the whole. It's not about being discerning. It's just about the fact that you're jaded on the kind of content that you're. You you, you want something to wow you, as you just said, and it's not likely to happen. You don't. You, you have low expectations for what kind of content that's going to be. So you end up scrolling the store and waiting for somebody to rave review about something, or in the case of Beat Saber, to just be kings at marketing and get everyone hyped up immediately. So there's. There, there is certainly a, a content problem, and I think the content problem specifically is that we haven't figured out what's good in VR yet. In early days, scale was enough. If something was big and interesting and you could look at it, we were suitably enamored. And then horror games were an easy win because, you know, there's an emotional hype and it's great for YouTube channels and that kind of thing. But we're kind of past that, quite frankly, 
easier content to make. And now it becomes a point of why would you make something in VR versus on screen? And like I said, people are actually reticent to put on the headset. You may think that it used to be a case of it is VR, therefore it's more engaging, so that's good enough. That's not true anymore. Now, I would actually prefer to play a screen game unless you can tell me the VR actively improves or engages the content in a way that I didn't see. So that's why that Astro game on, on PSVR looks good to me because it's not just it's not just Mario 64 again in VR. But if you look at the way they use the controller, your your engagement in the scene requires VR. Like that game would not work as well without VR. And I think that's the asterisk. So many games on the VR store and platform can work without VR. And if you can honestly tell me your game works without VR, I don't really know why I'm playing it in VR, you know? And I think we need to find out what is good in VR and, you know, what's going to really engage people. I mean, I found what's good in VR for myself. That's the thing. Like, I think it's tough because VR is like, um, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're going to find the, the one, th- I don't know if we're going to find the one thing that's going to be like, holy shit, this is it. Everybody, everybody like universally loves this. Like maybe, but like the closest thing for me has been social VR and specifically VR chat because it's the fucking wild West in there. It's crazy in there. And, and, and what wows me is not the technology, but like, the human creativity behind the technology, the insaneness that's like evolving right before my eyes. How do you script that? I, I and, and it's like, and it keeps me coming back over and over and over again. And I, you know, and it's weird. It's weird. And so for me, like I, I extrapolate that to, to, to telling me like, okay, what people really want is for there to be like a Westworld MMORPG or a like the eve you know the eve universe let that be like let me go in there in vr and like trade people with trade people for like ships and stuff that i can view at scale or like you know what i'm saying like i i think i think i it, it would be the mix for me the killer app would be a mix of like giant massive mmo kind of world with a popular ip like star wars or the witcher or something and just like you know, yeah, this RPG collaborative human social element with like combat and like exploration and yeah, and just crafting elements. It would be, yeah, I think that that would be for me, you know, and if like, and they, they've spent like a hundred million dollars on it, you know, on the budget, like actually putting something together that would be really good. Like, I think that would be the killer app so for you me. Just basically make the Oasis, yeah, okay. But I guess yeah. see, it's funny because for me that doesn't that doesn't interest me in the slightest. And I mean, again, like not not as a bad idea. It would be cool, and I would definitely play it or try it if it existed. What's what? What kind of what kind of consumer are you? What kind of VR user are you then? Okay, so I this is actually a surprisingly complex question because I've been really thinking about this. So I've. I, I've kind of gone through this weird phase at the moment where I'm a little bit I, – I, I went through a phase of being jaded by video games in general, and then I sort of tried to re-find my fun again, you know, sort of re, re-engage with that sort of childhood joy of games. So being a consummate nerd, I, I did it in the most boring and clinical way possible, which is to write a list of every game I've ever enjoyed and try to analyze why I like them. 
and try to look at exactly what it was about each game which I liked. And so I went through the different genres and why did I like this and do I predominantly favor platformers versus story-based games and which aspects of those games that I like. And if it's, if they had collectibles, did I like the collectibles that were frequent or did I like the ones that were littered vaguely throughout the level or did I like the ones which are mandatory? And I, I really, really delved into this right down to the point where I'm watching, um, you know, developer devlogs and I'm pausing the video on regular intervals to write notes. Like I really gave this a lot of thought over the last few months and I've come to the conclusion that there's two kinds of games I want. Now, this isn't necessarily VR, but the question is, can we make them VR? And the first one is I like I like a world to engage me and sort of encapsulate me. And, and by that, I mean people who really get into the likes of Bioshock and Mass Effect and all of those sort of story-driven games where you're not you anymore. You, you're basically, you take on the protagonist and you, you go through a story where it's scripted but it's scripted in a way where you're you're really trying to explore this world and that's one of my favorite kinds of games and on the other end of things is almost the complete opposite which is i just recently finished spider-man on the ps4 and when i say finished i mean 100 percented all of the things collected all of the things completed all the dlc i completed that game because there was something endlessly fun about the complete opposite of that how it's how it's contrasting the serious you know really engaging thing with just the sort of relax and sort of you know channel your childhood you know play play mario 64 again or that sort of collect-a-thon fun platformer so i like both extremes and i've kind of come to the conclusion that the only thing that ruins games for me tends to be other people now that's not to say i don't like going to things like vr chat it's just what i want from a game is i want to engage with the game and so i've uh, like, 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 for example, the my favorite, my favorite game at the moment. I say favorite. Actually, I kind of hate it right now, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. Is I play a lot of Overwatch to my, to my detriment. I, I've played Overwatch now for about a year and a half, and I've like furiously to the point where I've just I've gotten stressed out at the game where I've, it feels like a second job, and I've had to just stop because it's giving me heart palpitations out of rage. And the only reason that happens is people. <laughs> at the end of the day. I love the game mechanically. It's very clever. It's well designed. And if you're if you're ever trying to make a game, that game is a masterclass of design. Regardless of what you think of the game as a game, studying the way that they use audio cues and the level design and the the way they telegraph things and just there's so much clever design choices in that game yeah. that they just know what they're doing. And the thing is, I love all of that, but it is a team-based game at core. And so... My enjoyment of the game entirely depends on how willing the other people are in the game to join me in that. So if you play a game where one person is actively trying to scuttle your fun, then they'll succeed. If they actively stop helping or if you're playing a team game and they're just not taking part or they're doing the wrong thing or so there's a million and one ways where that can go wrong. And it's entirely dependent on how willing the other people are to engage in the experience I want to have. And that's fine because they want to have a different experience and sometimes that clashes. But it just means that I I don't like the fact that I'm dice rolling about whether I'll have fun dependent on whether other people are willing to have the experience I want to have. So I kind of prefer an experience where, as a developer, someone sat down and wrote an emotional journey they want me to have, and then I can have it, kind of like a book. You know, you you engage with it, and it's designed and crafted to give you ups and downs and an emotional roller coaster, and 
there's a level of guaranteed enjoyment in that, and I just don't, I can't get that from a social experience. What did you think of Resident Evil 7 on PSVR? Uh, I didn't try it, unfortunately. Actually, I don't even have PSVR. I've only tried it once. I have a PS4. I just haven't gotten the VR yet because, quite frankly, I have almost every other headset, and it hits a point where new headsets don't really <laughs> do it for me until something comes out that I... Like, I might get one for this Astro game, but that's the first one that really piqued my interest, but I haven't tried it. Yeah, Resident, have, have you played it? Yeah, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm hearing you talk about, like, you want something that pulls you in and you want to, like, really throw yourself in a world where, like, for me, Resident Evil 7, like... After finishing the game, and t- that moment where I took off the headset, I like I, I remember having taking this deep breath, like like I was like, it was really weird. It was really weird. Like it was so intense and it was great, but I'm never do I'm never playing it again. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing, and I recommend it to anyone who's down. But like, God, yeah. But it, but but yeah. But it. But I want to know what you would think playing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll add it to my list. That's something I want to try. But actually, it's funny when you're talking about games that you've played a lot of. Though it's weird that, despite literally me describing the two kinds of games I like, the time I've spent the most in VR is exclusively in rhythm games. And this is kind of a caveat to everything I just said, which is if you were to go to my Steam account and look at the top twenty games. Kind of from a pragmatic standpoint, based on free time I have and, and everything else, there's something about a 10, 15, 30 minute time box experience that I really like. And I've always loved rhythm games. I've just, they're probably my favorite genre of any kind of game. But I never really, I, I don't really think of them as a VR thing. They're just, VR just happens to be where there are a few good ones more than I think about them as being fit for VR. But um, I played the crap out of Audio Shield. Like I uh, just too. played so much of that that i can't even and then when when beat saber came out uh for a very brief time i was in the top i i, I was on top of leaderboards uh i i definitely was for europe and i i, I was global on like one song for about a day like i really <laughs> i really went hard on that game and really enjoyed it um and so i think i think there's something to be said for as much as I want all of these big dramatic and, and, and fun games that we've described, there's something about seeing behind the curtain and realizing how much work goes into making something like that, that I've sort of conceded the fact that if you're talking about it pragmatically, you can get a lot of value for something that takes less work if the work comes in the form of player engagement. And so this is, this is me getting boringly clinical again, is if you make a game like Spider-Man, you make the world you make the character controller and you've now got a cool character who swings around the world when they produced the dlc for that game aside from a one or two story mission additions they just threw a load more collectibles around the environment and as a player of the game i was fine with that it didn't feel like they were cheating me it didn't feel like they were padding things they were if you really look at it cynically but the fact is that is content and that content is fine and there's something the problem with making a big giant world game is that every every single new piece of content is like scripting another mini movie you have to have new voice actors and and you know do more animations and possibly more models and program new sequences but if you make a kind of game that's a, a mario-esque or collectathon or something you're effectively building something where the experience is in the exploration and creativity of the player and you can get a lot of value for less effort to produce it and 
that's not saying that developers are getting off scot-free by making less work. It just means we're more likely in the short term to get some really good experiences that are the likes of Beat Saber or the likes of maybe a, a Mario clone than we are to get the next Bioshock or the next, you know, even or get an Oasis, you know, because there's so much involved in that that it's very likely to fail before it succeeds while people can make multiple iterations of rhythm games. Like, we've had a lot of rhythm games, and some of them sucked, but there's two good ones. And likewise, people can make a lot of, you know, platformy type things, or first-person shootery type things, and a lot of them will suck, but there's chances for good ones. And I think it's... If we're looking to get a good enough collection of content to get people to engage with VR, I would sooner see developers try to make something simpler and succeed than try to make something bigger and fail. How long before... And I ask this question all the time. I feel like uh, I, I feel like a lot of questions I, I ask all the time already. <laughs> but I wonder, like, like I do all the time, is how long before you think we'll have uh, a studio big enough to say, all right, VR is big enough for us to justify time and investment for us to do something like this, like an, a giant MMO experience, or is it will never happen? Is VR? Are we? Should we like? What? To what is? I, I'm 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 so cynical that you won't like my answer to that. Is yeah? That what I think, it, where, where is where is where's the where is the limit of VR? Like, what are we just a niche? Are we just stuck at like maybe like 10 million people worldwide <laughs> forever, and that's it? Or I think the problem is that we're we're so involved with VR as as we're seeing it sort of inside out that there's sort of a, a rose tinted glasses sort of idea that a lot of the community they what's a big deal to VR is no big deal to the rest of the world and that's fine but I think I think the way to look at it is that in a small way um, you could look at um, the the Pokemon uh, the mobile game Pokemon Go. That's the one, Pokemon Go. I was thinking it was Go, but then I was getting distracted with Oculus Go. My brain went a bit crazy. Uh, yes, Pokemon Go. The thing about that is you could look at that as the first worldwide MMO on mobile device, right? Like, there are others. Actually, in fact, Neatum or Neatum, the company before, made another one. Like, literally made another thing before. Niantic did another one, yeah. Niantic, that's the one, sorry. Yeah, yeah and so like, there's other like and companies before that have made it. I remember there was one, God, about six years ago where there was some mobile game where you you play a virus and you you have like your zombies and you're basically fighting other people's zombies and they sort of infect each other and you're trying to get your zombie plague to spread across the world and so it was a really cool idea but just didn't go anywhere and it was very hard to get that to take off and so if you're being cynical you could say the mobile phone as a piece of technology to go from the first mobile game to the first mobile mmo that's been a long time. That's been a long track to get to something where the devices are so ubiquitous that it's worthwhile making an MMO for. And the only reason that happened is because people stopped seeing a mobile phone as a unique device, as a, as a new thing to have. And it's it's kind of like the um, – I always loved this phrase that said that we – overnight, we disproved Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster – because every single person in the world has a mobile phone in their pocket with a camera, and no one thinks about it. No one thinks about the fact that there'd be a, if, if all the supernatural stuff in the world existed, we'd have pictures of it. Because every single person in the world has a phone in their pocket. And, and ignoring what that means on a supernatural level, the thing that really sticks out to me is that that slipped by unnoticed. 
that all of a sudden everyone in the world has a camera. And there used to be a time where the idea of someone pointing at a camera at you scared you. And now you'd be amazed if someone didn't have access to a camera when something happened. And so that's a level of ubiquity that's kind of shocking. And that's the only landscape where something as big as a big dramatic MMO can happen. And even PCs, same thing. World of Warcraft wouldn't have existed if PCs were still a commodity, a unique idea. And TV shows as we understand them now wouldn't exist if it was still a, if it was still an amazing thing to go out and buy a TV. And unfortunately, it's going to be a long time for VR to hit that point where it's assumed a household has a VR headset. And I think that's not going to happen until AR kicks off. And then what's going to happen is secretly in the background, when we're not paying attention, when AR is a new hotness and all this new technology is changing to make clear displays and... and projector technology and all sorts of crazy hand tracking stuff vr will be ticking away in the background improving to the point where it's democratized and everyone will all of a sudden just realize they have one in their home and then someone will make the vr mmo and unfortunately that's going to take you know 10 15 years minimum so yeah i want to push on the narrative that ar is going to take off and bring vr with it i agree with it but I want to push on it. <laughs> I want to. I want to know, like, um, where does that come from? Like, why? Why do we all say that and we just accept it? I mean, yeah, like it makes sense, but like, let's let's de- let's dig deeper here. What's here? What are we? What are we? What are we? What are we really saying? What are we basing this on when we say that AR is going to take well, off? I I base it on the idea that people don't like engaging with anything <laughs> i'm trying to phrase this carefully and, and what, what i really mean by that is when when mobile phones first came out there was phone calls sure and then after that we, we actually had video calls long before people thought we did video call was a technology which existed for a very long time and now every phone can do it and what percentage of the population actually do video calls in fact what percent of the population still do phone calls Everybody prefers text messages because there's a level of disengagement you can have where you can just sort of passively send a message. And this comes back to what I was saying about the VR headsets, which is that VR, as it stands, is a very active process. You have to, you know, strap in effectively. And that's cool. And it lends itself to gaming because someone who's gaming is going to actively sit down and go, "I'm, I'm about to have an experience. I am locking off three hours of time to play this. But that's that's a very hard thing to sell to the mainstream. Like this idea of someone sitting at a home office, strapping on a VR headset and going to work is just not going to happen, at least not very likely anytime soon, because anybody who's worked on it, like as a, people said, oh, you can program in it or you could be an architect and, and work in it. No, because at the end of the day, you need bits of paper on your table you're going to look at and you're going to reach for a coffee. And the idea of having as someone who develops with a headset and has to check my work in the headset, it's actually a pain in the ass putting on the headset. I would like a world where I could just have a virtual mannequin head that I could put it on and have it rotate based on a little controller and just not ever have to put the headset on. Not because I don't like the look of it, but because it it literally is a hampering to my work to have to keep putting the headset on and off when realistically my work exists in the real world. And I think that level of entering VR is great experientially when you're trying to engage with it but it is not practical with how people live their lives and that's why mobile phones have gotten more and more passive people are using it with one hand how we now need to unlock it with one finger rather than having to to actually type stuff like it's gotten more and more to the point where you want technology to just exist and not have to engage with it and that's why 
that's why there's such a big push for things like smartwatches. And the only reason they're failing right now, smartwatches suck because you have to press a button, look at the screen, slide across back and forth. If smartwatches were just four buttons and you could like memorize sequences of buttons without having to press them, you'd engage with it far better. It's because people don't want to actively have to take energy and engage with something. And that sounds very cynical, but if we take it all the way back to the origin of this conversation, the concept of AR is technology that is moving digital information into the real world as opposed to moving you into the digital world. And if you move a person into the digital world, they have to really engage with that technology. But if you could wake up as this sort of futuristic worldview where the time is projected on the wall and you just sort of say a phrase and all of a sudden the TV displays your local news, all sorts of stuff, you end up with this scenario where data starts to become just something that exists in the same way everyone has a phone in their pocket. And that's why AR is going to be successful. It's not because AR inherently is better than VR, or even that there's going to be that many great AR apps. It's just the stuff that will exist can exist and coexist with you in a way that VR can't. And so until people get comfortable with digital information kind of persisting in their lives, they're not going to really see VR as anything else other than a separate state, like a thing you put on and a game you go into. So that's why I think, anyway, that AR is potentially more successful or at least willing to, to drag people into this idea of technology being part of their life. I just, I just feel like there's... I feel like VR is not for everyone, for sure. But I feel like the people for whom VR is for don't realize how to use it properly yet. Because... For example, I have a I have a meeting with a friend tomorrow at 9 p.m. So I'm sure as fuck gonna want to be at home. I don't want to be outside at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday when there's like smoke outside. And then, um, and then I, I had a choice. We had a choice, my friend and I, between like doing a a a, a video call or a Skype call or a, or hopping in in VR. And um, and we both unanimously decided to like see each other in VR, even though we know that Skype is just a button away. Because for me, at least, I don't know what his thoughts are. The simple ability to have like a human or a physical presence seemingly in front of you, it makes the interaction a little bit more human. And I know it sounds wonk. I don't know what I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being wonky. Maybe I'm being weird. But like when when you when I give people hugs in VR or I fist bump them or give them a high five, like there's there's just no way you could put that into words on a Skype call, you know. And so like um, and so I think that there's a a lot of people out there. I don't know how, I don't I don't know how many, but if they if they knew how to use VR for their for their own purposes take take ownership vr for themselves then i think i think they could you know there's a lot of use there um but like uh but yeah you know maybe yeah i'll start doing well, my business I, I, meetings in vr only from now on <laughs> the thing is though i, I think vr has a unfortunate it, it it's arriving at a time which is a bit unfortunate for it is that Regardless of the momentum VR makes, there's a very real sense at the moment of technological fatigue. And you can see it all over the world. The people are getting a bit fed up with technology. They're getting very – they're feeling like we're living in a world of fake news and we're living in a world of you know, notifications everywhere. And it's becoming a very trendy thing. And I say this because I'm doing it myself. 
is to just detach from technology. Like I've, I, I've, I've never had a Facebook profile, but I've also now recently removed a lot of my other accounts. I now have just Discord and Skype. I've disconnected from all sorts of different communities. I don't go on Reddit much anymore. I don't even use many devices. I've actually given away a lot of my old electronics, and I now block large portions of my week to force myself away from monitors and screens because it's it, it's funny. Even though I've just given this future of technology taking over your lives, that's what I think is going to happen, not what I think should happen. In fact, I think it's probably a bad thing for human beings as a, as a species, but – I do think I think right now there's a, a movement of detaching from technology and that's going to very much hamper this idea of people engaging with it more. And the stuff you're saying is right, but the reason why that's probably better is because you've got a lot of passive a lot of information isn't sent through a Skype call. So there's body language is such a big part of communication and, and being able to, as you said, high five and you know, fist bump people and it's more than that, it's more just even stances and how people cross their arms and if you really like if you study body language it's fascinating and you realize how much information is relayed like even going to the idea of of storytelling i i used to really love in college being the storyteller so i'd always have the elaborate over the top version of the night before where it would just be like sit around the fire let me tell you a tale and there's a lot of tricks to that and that people don't realize that it's an art form like anything else and there's lots of things you learn like if you lean forward and lower your voice as you tell a story, people in the room will lean forward as well. And there's a level of tension that you build by doing that because the assumption is you're about to tell them a secret. And that's a universal body language single for, okay, this is this is dramatic or this is very tense or listen carefully. And if you lean back, you, you're opening the space of the room you're in and everyone else does it too. And you're sort of making things more dramatic. So you can actually control the tempo of the, of the story you're telling with this extra information. That's just your body language. And people do this kind of a thing. 24-7 in every conversation. Like, everyone knows the crossed arms is closed body language and it's, you know, you're tense or you're angry or something. But there's a million and one of these that people don't really think about that you can you can realize how much is there, but you're, you're taking it in subconsciously. And so the idea of moving more information into chat is a great thing because I think the, 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 the way Twitter has turned conversation to one line without context, without tone, without ability to really explain or, or sort of have nuance and play off each other has led to so much of the horrible miscommunication that's out there. And I think it's a good thing that we should have more body language in technology. The problem is, like I said, people don't want to engage. And with VR, you're to get what you're saying, you're going to effectively have to strap into a suit. But with the potential for AR, stuff is effectively beamed to you, and your engagement is almost passively part of it. So I think the sentiment is right. I just don't think people are going to like it until it happens almost automatically. Or until the point is good enough. Because then there's – because I have conversations with people who are like uh, – who, who, who they're like – they'll ask you, oh, so, so what do you do? Oh, I work in VR. And they're like – and. In the first second, <laughs> you can tell by the look on their face <laughs> whether there's going to be some sort of like skepticism coming from them or there's going to be some enthusiasm in the first second, right? <laughs> and like the people who like uh, come at you with skepticism, a lot of times, not all of them. I mean, you gotta you gotta be able to read people, but like, but a lot of dudes. <laughs> A lot of dudes will, will be like, oh, wasn't that like, you know, from the 90s? And, I'll, and the first sentence that will come out of mouth will be like, the porn is amazing, man. 
and that's it. <laughs> that's it. I don't have to. The conversation's over. Seriously, that's it. <laughs> I don't know what else to that say. Is, that's that, it. That, that, that is. I suppose that is a good selling point. I just. That's like it. I said, uh, from, from my experience with that conversation, it's usually what do you do? I, I actually. I don't really CBR anymore. I say I'm a contractor in for software, and well, then why I, I you, kind why, of. Dep- why don't you say VR? You got, well, you're not proud to be in VR. Well, for me, it's it's more the fact that I'm in Ireland, and I, I had that conversation so many times where someone's like, "What?" <laughs> and oh. VR is something that it's fine for the younger generation because you get a lot of people who are engaging with it from the PSVR and the the gamer types, but. You know, when I go to the shop and I'm buying bread, no one I'm going to meet in the process of doing that is going to know what VR is. And when I get a taxi, no one's going to know what VR is. It's just, I'm just not, I, I don't get any level of engagement from it. And it, it ends up becoming an exhausting conversation to first of all explain that VR exists now and it's a thing you can buy and that I work for it. And then I start to explain what I do in it. And it just, I've just realized it's much easier to say I do software. And then people go, oh, like mobile phones and websites. Yes, like that. And it just makes my life easier. So it's a bit selfish, but yeah, I just found, like I said, it may, maybe this is the year of VR, but from my experience, it's not there yet. And Ireland may take longer to get there, but I'm I'm not seeing any level of even recognition outside of my own bubble of a community. And I think, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how it's not as big outside of even tech like tech is one thing you think people don't realize that they're in their own bubble of not just the vr community but they're in the techie people the people they talk to on discord if you're, if you're talking to somebody out in the shops they're very likely don't even know what vr is and i think that's still a case and i don't think people realize how much of a case that still is yeah and those are the people we want to reach to the most those are the people that benefit would benefit from VR the most because they're the people like and by the shops I, I take it you're saying like the the cuts the boondocks I don't I don't know what the shop means I think I, think. I just mean like going like you're going to buy something you're just oh, walking down oh. the road to the oh, shop like oh. you're saying my point is the people you will pass that aren't part of your community or friend circle right but those you know are what the I mean like I just mean anybody talk to the most though because that's because otherwise if we're stuck if we're stuck only talking to each other about VR. And when other people ask us, like, oh, so what do you do? Well, you know, I'm a CIA agent. <laughs> then that doesn't help. Like, you know, that's not helping VR. That's, that's, and so, like, you know, what, what I'm saying is, like, um, how does you, what I'm wondering now is how does your brain balance that skepticism with, like, well, fuck it up. Why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing here? Like, because, like, what is it? How, what's the thing that keeps you anchored in it? You know, despite all the skepticism, despite, despite all the, like, uh, the, you know, this, the, the reality that, that uh, this perspective that you have, like, what, how, how, how do you stay grounded in it? You know, that was a question I asked myself for about a year solid. <laughs> and, um, I eventually just realized I don't think I need to answer that question. And by that, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, it's going to sound a bit weird as I go up the tangent here, is that I've, I've been on a real kick recently about trying to sort of the whole self-actualization meditation-y stuff. So, and I, I really, I want to stress that 
I'm the born cynic and I've spent my entire life being someone who champions logic and stoicism and, and you know, hand-waved all the hippie nonsense. Have and you ever tried I always mushrooms? felt uh, no, all all I've done is MDMA and okay. weed. Okay. But um the but even that was like for the kind of person I was, even that was outside of what I even thought I would do. And so only as I, as I've reached my my 30s ish I've I've hit this point in my life where I'm starting to reevaluate what matters to me, what what I want to do with my life. And I realize that I enjoy VR, even though it's not as successful as it should be. I see a lot of really cool potential and cool technology that can come out of it. And I enjoy developing for it. And I'm confident that technology will prevail simply because even though I think it shouldn't always, I think it's actually, as I said, it can be a bad thing. Um, it's just, it's not stoppable. The, the way human beings engage with information and the way technology is rapidly increasing, Moore's law may be slowing down, but it's not slowing down enough. And I think that's a, depending on whether you believe in the singularity or not, it's a different question, is whether it's a good thing. But my, my point is that VR is not going to stop getting better. It may not get better at the pace we want, and it may not, like I said, I don't think it's going to, it's not all of a sudden going to be, ta-da, everyone likes VR. We'll just blink one day and realize everyone has a VR headset. I think that's the thing. It's not, like, it's it's a whole watched kettle thing. So there's no point in me stressing out about whether or not I have this sort of internal disconnect between whether VR is successful and, and how my role in it works. It's more, if I just keep plugging along, produce content that I like, or at least try to, and be happy about it and engage with it for me and the people in the community. I don't need to, you know, convert hearts and minds out there in the wild because it'll happen. Technology will eventually, I, I'll work on something. And then like, for example, Oculus flew over a, a camera crew to interview me in my home. And there's a, they did a drone fly by the house and we did a big dramatic little piece for dispatch. I didn't make dispatch with the assumption that that would happen. That happened because we made dispatch. And then from there, that's going to go on and people will see it and that might get people interested in VR. And so there's that sort of, it'll happen. I don't need to be, again, changing hearts and minds. And I think I don't need to, I don't need to be happy with the state of VR or my relationship to it. I just need to keep doing it and technology will solve itself and I can just enjoy my life doing what I'm doing, regardless of whether it's currently as successful as it should be. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good point. I feel like, um, yeah, like emphasizing sort of what, like, what makes you whole, like, what makes you happy, like, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's not a, it's not an, it's not an easy question to figure out, <laughs> and and, um, and I don't even think I know why the fuck I'm doing this a lot of times, but I still, I keep, I still keep chugging along. Yeah, so yeah, I wonder, I, I wonder, like, are you, are you comfortable talking about like? Um, the mushroom experience <laughs> or do you want to keep talking about VR? Oh, I'm, I'm an open book. Well, as it is MDMA, I haven't, I hadn't really tried, um, you tried mushrooms. LSD before? No. Oh, okay. Dude, I'm, man, I, th- I mean, I want to, like I'm actually on the board. It's just, it's one of those things where this, this sounds like such a silly statement, but it's more, I, I haven't found time in my schedule. <laughs> it's like, because I, I've, I've, um, I, I was out of it for about two weeks after MDMA. Not, not, not particularly, not like, sick or not it's just it, it i wouldn't quite call it an ego death it wasn't that level but it was it was some level of internal you know self-processing that it kind of it messed up my ability to get work done for two weeks and i'm acutely aware that there's a there, there's that association with you know any kind of hallucinogen or even any, anything to that effect so i want to but i need to wait until i'm less busy 
<laughs> so I can actually block out time and go through an introspection stage afterwards. So it's it's on my to-do list. It's just literally not right now. Back in back in my um, back in my old psychedelic days in the sixties, I, um, I I used to make sure uh, that uh, that that I only tripped after the day I got paid. <laughs> So that so that rent got paid, and like Smart. and then said rent was paid, and like I had like a full fridge in the kitchen, and you know I could watch Animal Planet for hours while tripping with a complete. Yeah, see, this is this is one of those cautionary tales people should tell people. Is it because I this is I had a similar thing. Is I had a thing where um, I had a for for one of my friends' birthdays, they decided to make pot brownies, and. They said they'd made them before, but I don't believe them, given what happened. But either way, so there's about six of us sitting around, and we all get a nice big plate of brownies. And there's no real sense of portion. <laughs> We're just given a large plate with a lot of brownie. And we all, you know, have all of it, effectively. And um, aside from it wasn't even good brownies, there was way too much chocolate. It's a whole separate thing. But we're sitting there, and we're all like, yeah, we're like, you know, you're all sitting in a circle, like, getting ready for a fun experience. And within 15 minutes, you could just see the room turn. And I remember, like, I went from within that 15 minutes, I was suddenly more paranoid than I've ever been in my life. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, I need to leave this room and go to bed. But I have a feeling they might try to stop me if I leave. So I need to, like, so I ended up standing up and going, I am going to the bathroom with the intention of sneaking up to my room and going to bed. And I was like, that's how, over anyway, so so this was on a Sunday and I on a, I was, yeah, it was on a, a Saturday or something, I can't remember either way. I was promised, because this was the first time for me with um, uh, with brownies, I was told, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine for work, it's, well, you'll, you know, it'll, it'll be good. And I remember the next day, panicked, and I was like, oh God, I'm, I'm late for work, and I'm getting out of bed, and I'm like, I can't find my shoes. And I go down the stairs, and I go into the sitting room, and I find one shoe, and I just hold it, and I just look at my shoe, and then I swear 15 minutes went by, and I just went... I have stared at my shoe for 15 minutes. I can't go into work. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm physically incapable of, if, if it's going to take me this long to find my shoe, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reason myself out of not going in, and I just, like, separately from the fact that they'd fucking tell immediately, if I walked into the office, I would not be able to get five, but it was just, I, I couldn't even get through, I couldn't find two shoes. That's how bad I was. Wow. And, yeah, so... So yeah, pro tip is block out your time. <laughs> Make sure that you can recover effectively. Yes, don't go on social media. Pay your rent, and um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, those are pretty good. Those are pretty good, and block out some time. Yeah, those are pretty some some pretty good life pro tips that I had to learn the hard way uh, a couple times. But yeah, it's and I, and I wonder like, have you? I I have conversations with people who are who are like, um, you know. VR is is basically the um, is the gateway drug to psychedelics, and I I wonder like ah, man you know what I really would love is to come back when you have you back on the podcast once you have done some mushrooms. <laughs> oh, got me in, man! I'm, I'm all for it. But, uh... Do some, yeah, do some mushrooms and go in VR or or LSD. <laughs> oh, if if we're talking kind of. That, that experience type thing I, I, I want to put a little thing out to the audience is that um, it's, it's, it's slightly off topic but I've had a bit of a revelationary moment recently and I really I, I want to like shout this from the rooftops is that um, I've my, my favorite hobby I suppose right now is I love music in general I've always loved music but 
I'm finally at a point where I can start engaging with it as a hobby. And by that, I mean buying stupidly expensive audio equipment. Huh. And in the last year and a half, I've been upgrading my audio set slowly but surely. Um, and I'd say for the first time ever, I finally have the full qualified proper entry-level audiophile stuff. And as someone who's been listening to music my whole life, and I'm talking, I really do mean this when I say I listen to about seven hours of music a day, almost consistently, because I sit there when I program, I listen to music when I get buses, when I go to work, when I all the time. I recently upgraded my pair of headphones, and I got a pair of the Sennheiser uh, HD6XX. So the they're basically the, the 650 series is sort of their rebranded version from Mastrop. But long story short, these headphones have fundamentally changed the way I listen to and understand music. And that's a really weird thing to say because I've owned other high-end headphones before. I've owned more expensive headphones before. But there's something about the way these it's well, it's the separation and it's the sound stage and it's an open back pair of headphones. But there's something about this which makes music an experience in a way that I've never had before. Hmm. And so I'm not trying to sell this particular set, but my point is that if you reach if you really like music and you're doing yourself a disservice not to start walking down the road of the whole audiophile thing, and it's not as expensive as someone might think. Now it is expensive insofar as when I say you want a two hundred, you know, dollar pair of headphones. That's that's obviously that sounds like a lot to people who, like myself, used to spend ten dollars on a cheap pair and that'd be fine. But if you start looking at it pragmatically for how much of your life you spend with headphones on, if you sit at your desk or that kind of thing, and it's it really is a, a game-changing experience. And it's so much so that there are bands I can't listen to anymore because the mastering on the tracks are horrible. And they actually, like, I physically feel uncomfortable listening to them. But there are other bands who I used to kind of like, but now have taken on this drastically dramatic, like, the Beatles now, I, I can just, like, I always liked the Beatles, but now I can listen to them. And it's and it's an experience in a way that it never was before. So I really, just if, if someone's never tried high-end headphones, my God, like I really like again, it changed the way I listen to music. And that sounds hyperbolic, but it really isn't. I actively changed the songs I listen to. Yeah, these are big words. These are very big words coming from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really made it. Dramatic. What does that even mean? What a, how can I've always thought headphones were just headphones were just headphones. I mean, I um I I got lucky my girlfriend used to work at Hired and um, for her starting package, they gave her a bunch of like swag, and one of the things she got was a a pair of headphones from um, Bose, the Quiet something something something. Quiet Comfort, yeah, they're good. Yeah, yeah, and it's and like uh, and then she gave them to me, and then like um, they're fucking amazing. But like, uh, yeah, yeah. But then to me, to, like I've I've used those, and I've used I I, I basically yeah. I spent a lot of money and a lot of effort. I've gone down the hole. I've, I've used the Quiet Comforts. I've used the 598 series, um, the Hi-Fi Men. Uh, I've the used the... Technica ATH-50 or something? Have you heard I've of not tried those, but yeah, but they're, they're good too. But my, my point is they're all... It comes down to how much you need to drive them. And I guess the, the most important thing for me is there's two things. One, if you've never tried a pair of open-back headphones, that's the first sort of level of game-changer. And what I mean by that is normally your headphones, you're just, you know, you're fine. You put them on and... and the, the, it's, it comes down to the 
how they sound in the, the room you're in. So if you put on a pair of, say, the Bose ones, so they've got really good noise cancelling, it's one thing. But secondly, the music sound like it's coming from a bubble. Like, imagine you've got, like, a, a spaceman hat on, and you're like, hat, Jesus, I sound like an idiot. Like, if you've got an astronaut's helmet on, it sounds like the music is emanating from inside of that shape. But if you have an open-backed pair of headphones, what they do is people around you can hear what you're listening to. It's a very, it's like little speakers on your head, and you can they're, they're quite loud. But likewise, you can hear all the sound around you. And that gives the audio a feeling of coming from the room you're in as opposed to coming from around your head. And then different headphones have different sound stages that are larger and smaller. And so something like the 598s have a really big sound stage. And that means... You, when you're listening to a song, it sounds like you're in the middle of a concert hall, like almost any song you listen to. It's it's a weird sensation because it doesn't sound like music is coming from your head. It sounds like it's coming from the room you're in. And that's already a big enough change that I, I fundamentally don't ever want to go back to non-open back headphones. But then you can go up more levels from that and you start to get things like high separation. And the the ones that really, again, changed my mind was the, was the 600s or the 650 series around that area where you can hear every instrument in isolation. Now, you think you can normally. You think with normal headphones you can hear every instrument, but you can't. You can hear the culmination of the sound, and you can pick out the instruments. But but when you wear higher-end headphones, you can actually tell the separation in terms of positionally where the instruments are from each other and which side they're on. And all of a sudden, the room... And if you combine that with an open-backed pair so that it feels like it's in the room you're in... It honestly feels like when I'm listening to the Beatles that I'm there is a guitar over in the right corner of my room and there's drums over in the left corner of the room and I can I'm in a space where music is playing. And as someone who loves music that much, it's so weird to me that I can listen to the exact same song I've listened to 5000 times in my life and all of a sudden there's more information in it. It's the same audio file. It's more information and it's suddenly I'm in the song. It's like it's like VR. So how try to explain to people the difference between a screen and VR. Oh well you're in the game. No, no, it's it's more than just visually there's something where you're engaging with it at a level that's hard to describe. And I think yeah, you have to try it. Yeah, it's, this it's is very cliche weird. from VR days. Yeah, yeah, this is weird to me. Like this is like a lot of a lot of yeah, a lot of big words for, for from someone like you for something I had no idea was uh yeah, was capable of. I feel like I thought we peaked at headphone technology somewhere. You know, I feel like we like uh, we, you know somewhere down the line. I don't know, five years ago, who knows? But but it seems to me that we're we're still we're still we're still well, pushing at the edges. It, it it almost feels like it's a secret because the the six hundred series are quite old. How they're old. They're like they? yeah. Well, with the Master Op re kind of redesigned version, they're about two hundred dollars. Okay. They're not. That and I say when I say they're not that much. What I mean is, these headphones are consistently. If you look at reviews online, not only will they get consistent five stars across the board, they consistently outperform headphones that cost a thousand or more. Like they are, it, it's it's that whole um, uh, sort of diminishing returns thing. There's a point where you get a high end thing, and you can keep pushing it if you have more money, but you're getting like a little bit better each time. Mm-hmm. But the difference between I don't know a pair of Beats. And a pair of the the six hundredths is night and day to the point where, like, you don't really need anything more than that. If you you, you can talk to a lot of really high end audio people, and they'll say a pair of six hundredths will do you forever. Like, you don't need that. It's not like you're waiting till you get more money to get something better. There are the eight hundredths and the eight hundred s's, and there's even there's other high end headphones beyond that. But the point is, 
going from what you're used to to a pair of the 600s is again 200 dollars ish that's like that's peak headphone for most people you'll never really need something beyond that point what's the name of the company Sennheiser. I hope they're listening because they should hire you as a salesman. You, sir, have <laughs> a lot of potential here. Have you ever considered reconsidered your career? Maybe you're maybe you weren't a programmer after all. Maybe you've been born to be doing this type of sales sales pitching. I mean, you're just you're so excited for it. It sounds like it sounds like it sounds like uh, you're more excited uh, about this than um, than VR. <laughs> well, I, I probably sounded like this for VR about three years ago. I, 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 I sound, guess I, I'm about to sound like you're like you're like. I'm, I'm about to, um, how do you say, uh, uh, I'm going to become the embodiment of the your of virtual reality, your, like, your girlfriend, your virtual reality girlfriend. Like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? I, I'm, che- I'm cheating on VR exactly. with headphones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and immediately I started thinking, I was like, all right, how do I bring this, this, this back full circle to virtual reality? And I got it. I got it. Help me. Help, help me here. Help me here. Because I need you to... I need you to blow wind on my sail so that, so that this ship can sail, okay? Basically, what I'm dreaming of is, like, that headphone experience, the moment I was, like, thinking about it, I was like, holy fuck, imagine if I had that <clears throat> somehow, I don't know how, in a sensory deprivation tank experience, you know, with a, maybe with a VR headset, maybe, maybe that might be too intense, but 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 that would be... Have you ever heard of? Have you ever done a, a sensory deprivation tank? No, but I'd love to. It's right up my alley. I, wow, I listen to yeah. the Joe Rogan podcast, and he swears by them. He uses it like every day. Something I'm really keen on trying. Back when I had money, I used to go there to these as much as I could, and it was great. It was fucking amazing. Like you would go in there, and I literally felt like I had um, in Dragon Ball. They have this like uh, this machine that cures Goku. <laughs> and so like i felt like i had gone in this machine like he like 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 my body would come out revitalize and i and i felt like i had all this energy and it was just this really weird respite of like fresh air really weird stuff i'm telling you did did you uh, time stop and train up as well or (laughs) no i didn't have time (laughs) i I didn't i was i was too i was too deep inside my mind it was it was weird it was weird because at at one point I forgot about my body. Like I forgot I had a body. And I and I was just and I was just sort of like a like my my mind or my 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 consciousness myself. I was I felt like I was just floating in in the ether of some of of dead space. And it was just uh like yeah, I wonder like I thought I started thinking like I wonder if this is what it feels like if my brain was in a vat. <laughs> if if they put my brain in a vat. Definitely not. Definitely, you know, my if if my brain were in a vat right now, I wouldn't be able to tell. <laughs> that that's a whole different conversation. We need we need to get uh, Elon Musk in here and start talking about the the singularity stuff. If we're going down that road. <laughs> Do you believe in a singularity? Do you think it's happening or it's going to happen or uh, already happened? I didn't. I didn't for a very long time, but um, I've I've heard a few compelling arguments. I I don't think it's going to be. Again, this, I, I don't want to derail off AR too much again, but this is it's an interesting topic. And I think the thing that sold me on the idea of a singularity is actually not it's, – it's not like Terminator. We're not going to get Skynet. We're not going to get the whole robot apocalypse. It's not that. And I think that's sort of – that that's a, a red herring for what the singularity really could be. And I think the real thing could be a lot more dangerous, which is 
if you think about it, don't, don't think of all of this dramatic, cool AI drone control stuff. Think about something much simpler, which is that a computer is running cycles, and it runs cycles at a rate faster than we run our processing, which means that you can ask a computer to do something, and you can have it run a thousand years in a day. And obviously, the better processing we get, the more you can do that, the faster simulations, the better you can run. And so it can effectively answer problems at a fast rate. Now, that's cool and all, but the problem isn't that it can do it or, or, or what it's doing. It's the idea that at some stage, someone will make something that's really good. And it could be anything. It could be uh, a stock market estimator. It could be uh, a way to calculate the perfect prices for products. It could be the the best compression algorithm. It doesn't matter what it is, but they'll use the constant increasing technology rate to build something so good that it will be able to make one nation far richer than any other. If somebody makes something that good that it'll single-handedly take over the stock market, that will lead to – that's something worth having a war over. And so the singularity isn't going to be specifically an AI takes over the drones and the rockets and all that. It is that someone will make something that will be so good or that will have the potential to be so good or that can figure things out at a rate that other things can't that it will lead to this sort of dramatic arms race for who can make the best AI. So even if you put regulations on it, even if you try to stop people from from doing bad things or, or, or creating drone AI, the real danger is that somebody hacking in their basement will make some really cool algorithm and they'll just keep iterating on it and they'll will eventually get to the point where the average person can have something like a supercomputer and somebody will change the face of the way nations interact with each other and then you've got world war whatever so that's that could then get to the point where you move on and you can get to potentially a singularity and all that. But the point is, it's more dangerous than the actual AI singularity. It is the fact that the rate of AI improvement could end us before we even get to that. Expand, please. I, like, again, imagine, just, just imagine if China earned uh, got a piece of technology which could guarantee with 98.7% accuracy, how the stock market's going to go. How would that affect the world? And you think that's possible? That's 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 in the realm of possibility? I, I think that's far. That's relatively simple in computer terms. You're talking about estimation and algorithms. You're talking, we, we, we were able to... Um, I mean, if, b- it's, between meter- if it's simple, why haven't it done it yet then? Well, again, it's a matter of time. It's, it's iteration. Oh. I'm talking about quantum computing. Like the, the only limitation on that, it's like there's a great, I forgot whose quote it was, but it's the idea is if we can see that something is humanly possible with the only limitation being time, it's this whole idea of the monkeys and the typewriter type concept, is that a computer is only limited by time insofar as we don't have enough processing power to increase this rate of time yet. And it is also running at a speed that's far faster than ours. So I'm not saying, the question isn't, is it, possible because if it is, it is i suppose to rephrase if it's even a fraction of a percent possible the only limitation is enough time to try it and a computer can try it millions of times per second so the fact is it doesn't matter if it's likely it just matters if it's possible and if it's possible and you can throw enough computing processing power at it you can increase that likelihood to the point where it is almost certain you know what i mean so maybe maybe the way I want to I think the way the way I'm trying to understand it here uh, 
is kind of like striking on a new resource. Well, let, let, let's no, let's go, let's go even simpler. Let's go simpler. Let's say um, you put a uh, basketball net at you know thousand miles away, and you create a cannon which can fire a basketball out of it. And you're saying, what's the chances I'll fire this basketball into that net? And the answer is fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a zero point zero 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 one percent. Sure, but if you've given me a hundred years to try it, I'll probably get it at least once. Enough time, enough mild iterations, a little bit left, a little bit right, a little bit left. It's not about how good I was at doing it. It's just you just left me with enough time with this almost nearly impossible task, and I'll do it. And a computer currently runs at thousands and thousands and thousands of cycles per second. So you're talking about giving a computer a task which sounds ridiculous and just giving it enough time to do it. And right now it's fast, but it's not like magically fast. We're talking about, oh, we've got, you know, quad cores and we can do all this cool stuff. When we reach quantum computing, which is a whole different question, the, the fact is quantum computing will exponentially increase those rates of things. If you can have a computer test something a million times in a millisecond, how long will it take for it to solve pretty much any problem? Like, that's what the singularity is. People think it's an AI that takes over the world. The real singularity is when a computer algorithm can run so fast that it can basically figure anything out simply because you've given it enough time. Like, we've seen AI play Mario. We've seen AI win at chess and win at Go. And it's not because it's figured it out. It's not a genius. It's that we've just given it enough bloody time to do it and figure it out. And take that, but give it a real-world, life-altering problem. And somebody is going to apply it to money. Someone's going to apply it to the stock market. Someone's going to apply it to forgery of currency. It doesn't matter what it is. One bad design, someone choosing one big thing to point to this problem at, one of them, given enough time and enough iterations, is basically going to cause a world war. Mm. So your view of the singularity is one in which it leads to world war. It's inevitable. Pretty much. It, it leads to – the thing is it's, it's the whole nuclear weapons thing. It's that you – we can come up with this technology which could be so powerful it can cure cancer, and that's great. And we'll end up doing a lot of amazing things with it. But you just need one person to decide to try to win the stock market. That's all you need. One person who has a computer they can run in their basement, which is running quantum processing, can press a button and say, oh, just try to figure out what the next – or try to figure out what the next lottery numbers are going to be. Right. And it sounds impossible, but you just need one person. And it doesn't have to be right every time. You just have to have enough algorithmic chances and process stuff and calculate all sorts of different things. And you'll eventually figure out something. It doesn't matter what that problem is. It'll figure out one thing, and one person can do that thing and – all of a sudden, it's 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 like think about Twenty Four or any other big TV show where there's terrorists or hell. I think Arrow did the same thing. Somebody creates the key, the encryption key that unlocks every encryption on the internet, and all of a sudden that's enough to kill for, and it's taking over the you know some bad company. Say it's that it's something that it may seem silly and science fictiony, but we're not talking about it's not magic. It's just time and processing power, and we're getting better. at minimizing time and maximizing processing power it's just it's a question of who's in charge of that process and 
take a look at deep fakes, right? That whole thing where people can like make porn and put people's faces on it, whatever they want. That's an idea of someone taking immensely powerful technology and applying it to something dumb effectively or making memes out of it. Well, that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying someone's going to maliciously go, hi, I'm an evil genius. I'm going to try to take over the world. Someone is going to just be messing with machine learning and they're going to come up with something which has an application that's very dangerous. And someone will see that, someone will use it. And you just need one person. It doesn't matter if 99.9% of the population want to do good things. If one person decides they want to just fuck with the way, you know, again, it's an easy one as the stock market to say, but it could, it could just be Wi-Fi. You have one person who has the ability to create something which can dynamically block all Wi-Fi signals anywhere in the world. You know, you can do anything. Just doesn't matter what it is. You can just mess with the world in one small way yeah. and that's powerful enough to be dangerous you know when in when in history has this happened before um because i'm wondering like all right well are you, are you basing this based off of like some sometime in history like this has happened and so history is going to repeat itself anyways or where do you well, well you, you can take you can take micro examples I'm, I'm not saying like this is ai is sort of big and unprecedented but like depending on where you are in history this has kind of happened to different people to a smaller scale. Uh, you know, the steam engine ruined so many jobs. The, the, the way, you know, it took over so many it, – it made the world more connected and amazing, but it also stopped a lot of work that would have been done without steam engines. You could say the same about the printing press. It, it, disseminates, it disseminated information at such a fast rate that it toppled regimes, like that because we had the ability to print and spread information – and it seemed like an innocuous thing, you know? It's just, it's information at a faster rate, and that's what the internet was. And, like, look at now. Like, we've got, you know, whether you're talking about Rwanda or anywhere else in the world where something bad could be happening, you can find out on Twitter. Like, that's a crazy concept, that if someone is, is if, if there is a dictator somewhere who's doing something horrible, you can find out by someone screen capturing it or tweeting it, or, or even these countries which have tried to block out connectivity from the rest of the world, you can't because there's just too much connected information. And that's, it's, it's this kind of a thing. It's not, it's the whole, it's not a bang, it's a whimper idea, you know? We're, we're, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's going to overnight, there's going to be some like bomb blowing off or anything. It's, it's, it's these subtle things which change the course of human history. And they have happened frequently. Like the car, you know, the, the Ford, like people don't really think about it now because they're so, oh, everyone has a car now, everyone has a smartphone, everyone has a, but they didn't. Like how big of a deal is each one of these things to the direction of human history? How, how people talk about how the internet and specifically Twitter has led to Trump being president. And I, and I don't get into politics. I'm just saying specifically that is an example where technology is a directing factor, just like the whole Russian bot type thing. And I'm, it's not Twitter. Nobody would, if you, if you come back in time 10 years and said Twitter is going to have a big part in an election. You're like, that's silly. Twitter is just a thing we write messages on. It, it doesn't matter what it is. It matters at some point where someone finds a use for it that is different than what we conceive it to be. So in answer of has it happened before, it happens all of the time. We just don't think about it because it happens so subtly. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, you're not to get into politics, but the, if it wasn't for the internet, Obama also wouldn't have gotten elected. Um, oh, for sure. I mean, I think I think his Reddit AMA is almost like half his votes. Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like it's so hard to predict the future. <laughs> you know, it's so hard to like, and and although you like your 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 logic is sound in that, like, yeah, like it only takes is it's 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 almost like a law of percentages, right? 
my 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 thing is like um my thing is like well how do i give how do i give the right people mushrooms so that this doesn't happen and then i think about like (laughs) (laughs) and then i think about like um i thought about like well isn't climate change more likely to cause World War Three than uh, 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 the possibility of a, of a of a rogue AI being unleashed? Because you think about like how governments are spe- like governments are going to spend more and more money on on f- fighting off the in- the intensification of climate extremes and how we're not really prepared. And it's gonna, and it's actually an exponential problem. Just looking at the way the methane is being released in, in the Siberian permafrost, and when you think how like methane is twenty five percent, no, twenty times stronger that a carbon dioxide, a, a, a greenhouse gas, than carbon dioxide, and then you're like, holy fuck, <laughs> how are we ready for this? You know, and so to me, it seems like. Um, human beings are not very nice when there's scarcity. Like, honestly, if, if if it wasn't for the oil boom that happened in, like, North Dakota and all those places, like, America would be a lot more divided right now. A lot more divided. Money is... Money and prosperity keeps a lot of people um, from going in, at each other's necks, you know? Well, there, there are many theories that the... the the scarcity concept is is basically the the unifying factor for pretty much all problems in the human race is that everything has always been about taking someone else's land or someone else's money or someone else's something and that in a world there's there's a potential theory of utopia which states that if we reach a point where technology has managed to remove the need for anything for anybody effectively scarcity becoming non-existent as a concept because we've democratized everything to the point where you can basically have everything you might need it's nearly impossible for people to reason themselves into war they might want something someone else has they might want some thing but at the end of the day if if scarcity is such a if it's almost solved then it's almost impossible to cause war I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. I probably don't. But it's an interesting thought process. That I mean, I've experienced it. it. I've experienced it. I grew up in a poor household in Nicaragua in the 90s, right after the war. And like, we were family members, but we were at each other's necks because there was so we, were, we had so little, you know. It was weird. It was weird. Like, I remember like, I remember like, we would eat so fast <laughs> because, because, um, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want the other, like, we didn't want to share food with the other kids. Yeah, it's like the, the classic thing about a prisoner, you know, they, 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 cover, they cover their their bowl with their hand and they eat sort of protectively because but the idea... But now that I live in San Francisco, it's so much nicer because I ha- I can, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's a, it's a, that, you know, that's where I'm, I'm coming from. Like, oh, this, this human nature thing, I've experienced it before on a micro scale. And it can happen at a macro scale. Well, you know, we've seen it before. Yeah, I mean, my my only thing is that, well, that, well, that's a true thing that happens. My, I think it's a cause and effect concept, and I think that, for me personally, 
I think the reason a lot of problems happen is because it is less about the state of the world and our perception of it. And I think one of the biggest problems we have right now is everybody's insistence that their opinion matters. And it sounds like a harsh, and again, back to my classical skeptical thing, is that everybody, because what's happened with technology is it's, it's, everyone can say their opinion, broadcast it to the world, and have their own soapbox. That's fine. But on top of that, they can see what everyone else's opinions are. And that's got two negatives. One of them is that it's, it's the, people call it the Instagram life problem, is that you, you see everyone else's life as this sort of perfect image of what they put out into the world about how, oh yeah, look, we're on holiday all the time, everything's great. But it's not just that. Like, if you take away all of the superficial, look at, look at my new TV, look at my holiday, look at my stuff, it's the same with ideas. It's that it used to be a stage where if you were in a small village and you were, you were a painter, you could be the best painter in your village, a big fish in a small pond, and you suddenly – you had everything your life needed. You could be a comfortable, happy existence of being the painter in your town, the best one. People will buy your painting. Everyone's happy. We've now got a global market, and the unfortunate truth is there's always someone better than you. And so the entire world has gotten more disenfranchised because you're not comparing yourself to the people around you anymore. You're comparing yourself to the global stage and it's made everybody more cynical and annoyed and everyone feels like they're inferior and everyone feels like they need to change the world because they can't, it's no longer about changing your small town. It's no longer about running for your local government. It's about running for president. It's about everything that needs to be big. Everything needs to be dramatic because your, your lens is pointed at the entire human existence as opposed to be the best version of you for you or in your area or in your family or in your town. And so I think it's much more important for people to start realizing rather than trying to change the world, rather than trying to go out there and, and solve all of these big problems, try to solve your problems and spread that positivity outwards and get other people around you to solve their problems and let that be the virus that spreads and solves the bigger problems. If every single person starts running headfirst at the big issues with different perspectives, there's uh, you're just nobody's going to agree, and you're going to lead to this constant warfare. It's the it's the idea of the um, the blind men and the elephant. If you ever heard of that phrase before, it's it's this everyone is going to come at it from an angle where they only see their side of things, and we live in a dis, dis situation where nobody wants to have a conversation anymore because everyone thinks the other side is actively evil. They don't realize their intent is probably the same. It's just they come from a different side, at least in a lot of cases. And so I think it's much more important for people to start focusing on their vicinity before they start focusing on the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, my, my, my little brother um, is... Uh, it's funny because there's, um, there's, there's, there's a group of people in America that complain about like um, jobs going overseas or migrants coming over and taking their jobs. But like, um, but like, but it's funny because like there's the, but cause like, um, cause this globalization thing is so huge. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, my, how do I say this? Um, there's people who are mad at the wrong people. <laughs> you know, like um, pointing hate towards basically this is what's happening right now. Like my little brother is in Philly, is in Philadelphia for some work, right? Um, 
and the Proud Boys are out there right now, or they're planning a, a march for this Saturday. So I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, well, I should tell my little brother to, like, stay away from, like, downtown Philadelphia because there's some shit about to go down over there, you know? Like, this, wh- whatever, like, and it's just, like, and it just sort of made me realize, I was like, man, this is, like, um, yeah, it's not a hand. I don't know. I don't know. what, And it's weird because it's, like, um, yeah, because to me, well, I, I would say one thing as well. It is worth noting that the other problem with technology, as we've described it, with the infinite connectivity, is that it's very easy for the vocal minority to alter the perception of how reality is. And I, I can't remember the exact recent study, but I think most people have seen it by now, which shows that we're talking about nine percent and twelve percent of the fringes that are representing the majority of this media that we're seeing like the if there's been a number of people who there's a a kind of a a conceptual experiment going on at the moment where people turn off all of their media and just live their life for three weeks and try not to look at the news and just try to assess how much brackets hate there is in the world and the fact is there's not that much if you start walking around and just live your life and just don't look at media you'll realize a lot of it is isolated to these online spheres of people screaming at each other. And I'm not saying this doesn't exist. Obviously, there are these these riots and things going on. But my point is, these are things that happen. And because we've got this interconnected worldwide something, you're hearing about stuff in other parts of the world which represent a, a thing that happened. And it's suddenly a thing that's everywhere. But it's not. It's a thing that happened in a place one time with some people. And I honestly see the world as being far less vitriolic and evil as people think it is and i think the only reason that people are so panicked is that because they keep feeding themselves into this constant stream of crap and i honestly think if you actually just decouple yourself from it try to even spend one day a week and get into the habit of adding slightly less social media to your life you'll realize that your neighbors are not trying to kill you there's not you know there's nobody, there's no, nobody marching down your street on a regular basis. There might be somewhere in the world right now someone's having a march of something you disagree with, but it's probably not happening to you. It's probably happening around you. And unfortunately, it sounds unempathetic to say don't look at it or don't care about it. But the fact is, I think if more people didn't look at it for just a little bit of time and just let a bit of sanity sink in, we'd all be a lot less afraid of boogeymen that live in another planet somewhere else in the world, which may or may not be about to attack us. Yeah, that's um, that's a weird. You know, it's 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 weird for me to process that because, like, on the one hand, I like I agree with you. Like, you know, this like um, media sells when there's drama, when there's people because because it's it's how humans are wired. You know, we we the um, the part of the brain. I can't I can't. The, not the limbic system it's not the limbic it's um there's a small part of the brain that triggers the fight or fight response and when you trigger that that overpowers the prefrontal cortex right so 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 if people understood just a little that little fact about your brain you would know that we're all being manipulated but my thing is my my thing is like is my concern comes from the following research is that like, i have a friend my friend told me he was like you know he's like the cia published research saying that and it, it only takes six percent of a population to change the course of the whole 
And this is based on like them having experience overthrowing governments <laughs> and changing, you know, governments across Latin America, across the world. And so I'm thinking to myself, I was like, okay, well, if what you're saying right now is that there's six, nine to twelve percent of the population is being really loud, are, are, to what degree are they changing the course of the whole? And that, honestly, I think, has affected me personally. I was telling Blair earlier, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell him because I was so caught up in my my emotions because I'm still dealing with this shit till this day. I still don't know how to deal with it, but like, yeah, I was caught up in like a, a in a in um in I came face to face with like with how racist the prison the prison complex is the the justice system is in America, just driving down a rural road. At night with my friends, and like me and my girlfriend, the two people of color are the only people getting harassed by while three other white people in the back of the car just fine. That's weird, man. It's weird. It's like, and it's like, and I was just minding my business, and I could have not been paying attention to the news, and that could have just happened to me. So, like, it's it's like, yeah, I can turn off the news, but like, I can't stop other people from acting on the influence of you know the the extremes and when the and, and when the and when the extremes come from a leader like that's really dangerous to me so yeah it's weird i don't know I, I, well I, the thing is i'm my, my problem with all of this is that regardless of whatever current beliefs people hold about anything if if you do any study at all into brain chemistry, and as you were mentioning, is you'll realize that brains are really bad at a lot of things. We're very good at getting data. We're very bad at processing data. And you can look at this from any number of angles. You can look at this from the amount of those those weird optical illusions, which can just mess with your perception of reality. You can look at, there's even the, the audio ones, like the, the Yanni Laurel thing. It doesn't matter. Like These are all micro silly games, but they highlight a very important thing, which is that our brains have blind spots and in the case of our eyes literal blind spots the the thing that matters about that is that this doesn't just apply to literal physical concepts there is a lot of stuff that people don't realize that are psychological blind spots and and one of the ones that really struck me as a fascinating thing is that if your goal imagine you're a charity and your goal is to maximize money for your charity if you go up to somebody and tell them a story of a little girl who's lost her whole family and she's you know got malaria you're going to reach maximum empathy that person is going to go holy shit i need to give you like money to help with this if you say oh and she has a brother not only does your empathy not double it halves something about your brain goes off okay now there's two things to deal with because we're not good at dealing with large problems and the bigger a problem gets the harder we can relate to it and empathize with it because it starts to become something we can't deal with if you give someone a problem and go this person is sick they need medicine do you have medicine yes here give them medicine you can solve a problem and your brain is like that's easy i can deal with that if you if you scale a problem you can't deal with that and there's so many people who look at the world and go there is problem in america with something everyone is fighting each other and then they try to solve that like one aside from the idea in my mind that there's a huge level of hubris that people think that their particular angle approach and outlook is good enough to solve that 
or that they have the ability to, or that they have the right to, aside from all of that, even if you take that for granted, the idea that your perception of that reality is the right one is very hard to take. And I, I mean this in terms of, you talked about the, the 6% or so being able to sway how the world works. Well, the same goes for if you tell one compelling story about a sick kid, you can change world policy. Now, again, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. My point is that people will change their mind based on a very good emotional tale. And that's not a good place to be. And I'm not saying that it's where we should live or what we should do. I'm just saying that if we're willing to accept the fact that the worst thing we can do is use emotion as a weapon to say that this is – I had this experience where this guy was a prick and fucking ruined my night out because of something. I mean I'm not saying it doesn't happen. In fact, I'm not saying it doesn't happen to a lot of people who have a similar story. But that shouldn't be something that drives worldwide policy. You don't and think I'm not there's s- a problem with racism in prisons in America? Like you don't think – like I saw 70 percent of the people around me were brown faces, man. I used to think I, – I didn't, I didn't think there was a big deal, but then I was in there. And then, like, and then I had to deal with, like, suicidal thoughts after that shit because I was like, oh, my God, I am not a free human here. You know, how do I know that person over there doesn't think I'm a bad hombre? How do I know that person over there doesn't think I'm a bad hombre? I went insane for months, dude. It was hard. And like, yeah, but I mean, it's and it's and then I looked at the statistics and like, you know, just look at just I mean, we can go on Google right now and look at all the people who are incarcerated incarcerated right now. The majority of them are men of color. This isn't my belief. This is a fact. So I'm being specific here. That's, I just want to put. Yeah, I but again, ground, put a, a I know, flag I, I, here no, I, I know what you're saying. But, I, but all, all I can say is that you have a you have an experience and you have facts which are true to you. And from and I'm this is nothing to do with your life or anything to do with any of that. On my side of things, I live in Ireland and any story I would tell you would be unrelatable. I could tell you about the way my life lives or stuff that's happened to me, good or bad, it doesn't make a difference. My point is though that I have a perceptual sphere around my life of how my life works. And some of that, I, there's there's news worldwide about what's happening in different places. I'm not saying anything is right or wrong. In fact, I've, I've been very careful that I don't ha- I don't I like I don't even have an opinion on a lot of this stuff with America because there's no point in me having an opinion because I'm in Ireland. <laughs> None of this affects me, and that's not saying that that's it, this whole thing of empathy again. Unfortunately, I just can't empathize with a problem this big, and I know that about myself, and it's a bad thing about myself. But the fact is, I'd rather be safe in that knowledge that. I can only deal with the problems outside my front door. And all I can do in my life is be the best person I can to the people I know and try to spread as much positivity as I can. I can't solve a worldwide crisis, and I don't think I'm capable of even trying. And all I'll do is break my soul if I do. And so the best I can do is hope that my good I can put into the world is good enough to make other people put their good into the world and keep it going. And I think it's not doesn't solve every problem and it's a little bit sort of vague and hippie-ish but if more people did that there would be less problems it is the idea that everyone thinks that everything is crazy everywhere that they're all putting all of their energy into these big problems and it's again there are problems 100 percent, but no amount of everybody screaming at them is going to solve them i think if people fix their own friends lives families everything Things get better through osmosis. You don't need to have everyone try to solve every big problem, you know? And see, so I'm not minimizing your experience. I'm just saying everyone has experiences. And 
trauma is can happen in a minute. Without going into too much detail, I was on antidepressants for the last eight months prior to a few months ago, and I was crippled in my home. I couldn't leave, and I was I had my own issues, and I was uh, the whole thing. I don't want to go into huge detail, but let's just say I'm suffice it to say I'm not a stranger to suicidal thoughts and problems. But my point is that everyone has stuff. Some is worse than others, but it's not fair to play that Olympics of who's got a worse life than who. Everyone has issues, and if you just accept that fact and try to just solve the things around us, things get better. Maybe not at the rate we'd like, but better than they would if everyone tries to solve every big problem. Who do you look up to? Um, I don't think I do. I think I, I look up to the potential for people as, as vague as that sounds. I, I like the idea of who we could be. I don't, I don't think anyone's a good, I, I think you, you can't have a godlike golden figure. I mean, aside from literal God for some people, but my point is that there's to, to idolize something is to assume that thing is flawless. And I think to try to live up to something which is literally impossible is where we got ourselves in trouble with eating disorders. And that's just one microcosm of the problems with reality. There's no point in, in trying to deify something and live up to it. And that's also why a lot of relationships fail. You've got one person who puts someone else on a pedestal and then tries to t- tells themselves that they're, they're not good enough for that person or that they want to own that person, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is, if you don't just look at things objectively and real. And I'm not saying you have to get rid of emotions. I'm saying you can be real, understand good and bad, and then emotionally engage with that without having gods or devils. Yeah, what's, um, what influences your philosophy? Um, a lot. I've, I've read books on Stoics. I've, that's probably gained a lot of it, but I've just more... I don't know. I've done. I've done the rounds. I've I've looked at Aristotle and Rand and life myself. I don't know. I, I can't. I, I can't tell you how I've come to this sort of cohesive life belief. All I can say is, I've read a lot and tried to assume that anyone I meet, even if I'm wrong, doesn't have inherently bad intentions. My assumption is every person I meet thinks they're doing the right thing for either themselves or the people around them. And that may not always be true, but at least if I work with that assumption, I assume they're not out for me. And I think that's a big problem where a lot of people assume – like there's this concept of steel manning an argument. If you have a problem with somebody's argument, rather than try to pick the flaws in or try to change their mind, try to internally tell their argument to yourself in the best possible way so that you understand it and why they might believe that. And if you can do that with your opponent's argument – you might be able to see them as a human being with an opinion that's different from your own. It may have come from bad places. Their opinion might be that all water is poison because they grew up in a small village where water was poison, and they only have a certain amount of information about that. And so that's a, that's a belief that is wrong, but it's a belief that's fair to have because of their experiences. So my assumption is most people either think they're in danger from something and are trying to fight against it, or they think that something is a threat and they're trying to solve it. They're not... People, nobody sees themselves as the devil of their own story. And I don't think there's any value in us living in a world where everyone tries to assume the other person is literally a devil or that they have gods on their side. There is no benefit to that, in my opinion. I think we should just assume we're all people, assume we're all aiming for something, probably good for at least them, even if it's not for me, and that we just engage with them on that level. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm with you in the in in the sense of like, yeah, there is no, yeah, there is no deities. There is no. It's there's like all that stuff is imaginary. <laughs> to me, it's like, yeah, I um, yeah. There's um a great series on the um, uh, I don't know if you've seen these the what's it called again? Pangmer and philosophy. Have you ever seen those? No. They're, um, it's, it's a series of it's a YouTube tough channel. because I'm like I hear you talk about this and I'm like God it's hard because I still get scared of fucking cops every time I go out it sucks dude it sucks I don't know what to tell you well again, again I'm, I'm not saying uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm like, not I'm saying not to your I, argument I, in your mind and, I'm, and in my mind I'm like God I want to be logic I want to be logical about this but fuck I'm scared well, I, I guess the only thing I can say to that is maybe assume they're scared too of me? I'm not saying they're right. Me and my yellow yeah, sweater and my white dog? Maybe. I'm, I'm not saying they're right. Come on, dude. I'm just saying it, it's, it's – the argument is that they don't know you and they're probably making an assumption about you that's horribly wrong and that's making you scared. Well, who's to say it's not your way around? I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying rather than assume that they left their house that morning whistling about how they're going to ruin someone's lives that's not the same color as them, maybe assume they have a belief system which – means that either they're scared or they fear something that you represent. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's just the way it is. And maybe you can talk someone out of that. And being afraid of them and them afraid of you and using that as a reason not to talk to them or not to engage with them is not going to solve that problem. I'm not saying it will solve the problem by talking to them. I'm just saying factually it's guaranteed not to solve the problem if people just assume the other person is actively out to hurt them. Yeah, it's just such a such a gamble because i and this is this is coming from someone who like my mom was a police captain i worked with cops before i have friends who are cops who are like awesome human beings but out there i don't know who you are and i'm always like throwing like throwing the dice you know are you are you a good person or are you are you looking for an excuse you know i don't know there's 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 a ted talk by a guy who was brought up and joined a white nationalist group, ended up leading it, and then eventually changing his mind and meeting somebody who completely changed his belief system. And now he goes around and tries to, you know, change other white nationalists' minds and make them sane. And it comes down from the fact, not that somebody called, his whole life he was afraid that there was bad brown people. And that they were out to get him and so he was out to get them first and it's not until someone sat down and talked to him that he went well shit this guy's reasonable and maybe i'm looking at this wrong and it's only through a conversation that that guy decide that he was going to go out there and he's going to try to change minds for the better and it's not a i can't give a I can't give a world answer. I mean, the thing is, nobody can. And I'm not trying to solve the world's problems. And I'm not trying to say, kumbaya, everyone work together. Because I think we've established I'm a very cynical person. I'm not saying these will solve problems. I'm just saying that there's certain things that guaranteed won't solve problems. And I think, like, the amount of times in life, like, we've all done this. We've all had a situation where we're really angry. And we're trying to, we're having an argument with somebody we actually like. Say it's a person, your, your girlfriend or your family, and you're really angry at them. 
and you know the thing that you will say will piss them off more <laughs> and you will say it out of spite because you're angry but your actual objective is to stop the fight in your brain you're going i just want this to end i want us to go back to being fine again but what you'll do is directly counter to your own objective because your emotions will tell you yeah i can get a dig in and that's that's what we do as people we end up we we let these things actively go against their own objectives and again it's 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 a hard and scary thing to do to just assume good in people it's a very scary thing to do but if you want to take away all the other stuff you can look at it purely from a logical standpoint there there is the um uh the gambler's not the gambler's problem what is it like i'm so bad at remembering some of these is but like we've all it's kind of like game theory, yeah. It's, it's it's an element of game theory. It's that idea that we've all seen this this problem where you say um, two people have to decide if they're going to steal or share, and then if you you know if you if you steal and the other person shares, you get all of it. And you, you think there's some variation of that game in a lot of scenarios where if both people share, you both get half, but if one person steals, then that person gets all of it. And so you can approach that problem assuming. They're going to steal and steal back and then nobody gets anything. Or you can assume that they're going to share and you share too. And you can mathematically work this out. There's simulations that you can do where you pass in a number of people who will always steal, a number of people who will always share, and a number of people, you know, in all these different scenarios. And then there's there's different – yeah, there's weighted games on that. And so the idea is it's mathematically provable that assuming first time round that people are are going to be doing the right thing – leads to conceptually a better outcome for everybody now if the same person screws you over more than once then fine that person has proven themselves to be horrible and wrong and that's fine but you're literally by your own definition you're talking about strangers and it, and it is mathematically more beneficial for you for the world as a whole for the overall outcome to improve if you assume every individual you give them the benefit of the doubt once and yeah. like I said, maybe that cop in particular you talked about, fuck that guy and don't ever talk to him again. And he'll ne- that person is bad and you've marked him in your mental memory as a that one is a bad one. But the fact is, if you use that logic across every person you ever meet with the same profession or the same circumstance or the same skin color, that is how we get to the problems you're describing in the first place. I mean, I'm still going to call the fucking cops if I'm getting robbed. <laughs> you know, like, sure, I'm still going to, like, what choice do I have? You know, so... So, yeah, I, 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 I actually did that, that game. I played that game and I became and I actually found out that I have a bias towards being um, the, uh, they call it the, the, the collaborator, the, the farmer or the peasant and then the, the troll or something. And, and, and the collaborator always collaborates, always assumes, like you said, always assumes the, the other stranger is, is coming with positive intent. The, the farmer will go in and or the peasant will go into it with thinking that the person has positive intent but like once that person flips does something wrong the farmer never never collaborates again and then the 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 troll that's you know going in there and just causing havoc and 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 in simulations they've done the simulations and and yeah like the collaborator always wins in the long run the 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 peasant has a good run but at the end the collaborator always wins and um yeah, and I just and I and I had that like realization after playing that game. I was like, how do I rewire myself? Like, how do I become more trusting of people? For someone like, especially for someone like me, who's like, who tends to be a bit more like a, a I believe like I wanna I wanna believe in humanity. <laughs> for someone like that, like I, I I think I'm a little hypocritical where like I struggle with like 
yeah, with that, like, how do I trust people? I don't know. Yeah, but I think I think what you said just now is if if there's one big takeaway, we're like, I know you were trying to avoid the whole kumbaya thing, but like, I think that there's something you broke down kumbaya to a mathematical equation. <laughs> you know, I think I think. <laughs> well, to be honest, I, I kind of I had to. Like, I'm not, I'm I don't even mean this flippantly. It's like I am I am a cynical fucker, and I have been my whole life, and I'm exactly the kind of person where if you met me in my 17, 18, 19, 20, that, that stage in my life, I was that guy that everyone hates who smugly knows all the big words and then tries to use them in conversation to prove he's smarter and really relish this idea of being this sort of, you know, intellect is king and emotions are evil and they'll take over the world and people are dumb for having feelings. And I really owned that pers- personality and it was just, it was such a douchey thing. But the fact is there's a, I, at a certain point in my life, now I, I could go into the the philosophy of that. There's a whole different because I've I've read a lot into these topics to try to find out who I am, just like you were saying you did, and it's not an easy thing to figure out. And I realized that there's a diminishing returns on treating logic like it's a god, like anything else. And I just mm. I came to the conclusion that I'm not very emotional or empathic or very good at that stuff, so I can't use that as an argument, and I can't I'm not swayed by an emotional argument. But I think empathy is scientifically provably good for everybody that you can make a logical argument for it. And that's what I did. I argued to myself that I may not be emotionally invested in things, but there is a very good reason to be a good person. And I think for a lot of people out there, they need that. They need to find the logical center to the argument for why being good is good. (laughs) As silly as that sounds. Yeah. I'm not saying you're a sociopath, but I had a friend who's a sociopath who told me that like he the the way he was able to like stay grounded was in breaking down morality to like a mathematical equation where it made sense to be a moral person. It just it just it's just it just it's math to him. And so that was interesting, but I'm not saying you're one at all. I think you're. I think you're an awesome human I mean, being. I, I might be. Who knows? I don't know. I, but my, my, either way, my point is it, that shouldn't even matter. Yeah. Uh, the point is that I can, if if somebody like him or me, who's who's coming from the side of not caring about emotions that much, can justify caring for your neighbor, then all the people out there who claim to be, you know, empathic and and loving, maybe they should too. <laughs> Maybe, mm. maybe that they can do the same thing and we can find some common ground on the idea that, and I still think it shouldn't even need this much complexity. I think you should easily just be able to say, nobody thinks they're the villain of their own story. It's the fact. Nobody thinks they are the villain of the story they live. And so you may see them as a villain because of your perception on something, or they may see you as a villain. But the fact is, they think they're doing either the right thing or the right thing for them. And that should be enough for you to reason out that they might have a reason for what they're doing. It might be based on flawed logic, but they're not arbitrarily actively going around trying to be evil. Nobody does that. There's not a single person in the whole world who is a robotic evil thing who likes to run around. Even if the most evil person in the world is doing it because they think they are righteously right in doing so. And again, that's not saying that it's right. I'm just saying if you understand that every person you meet has a justification for their actions – the question then becomes maybe we give them the right information or the right justification rather than assume they're evil. 
Yeah, in the in the in the case of the cop that arrested me, he was saying he told me in the back of the car, "Yeah, you know, I'm sending my kids to college with the money I'm making off of off of this." So, so yeah, he's he's a hero in his story because he's sending his kids to college. So, yeah, I agree. I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's crazy. It's um and it's and it's and I want I just yeah, and I wonder whether we'll ever get out of this sort of paradigm. Like, is there anything? I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, but that's a really good thing to think about. Did- well, well, this is kind of why I don't think about it at this scale. Like, a lot of people will go to this again. Like I said, it sounds like it is being unsympathetic to close your eyes to the pain in another half of the world. But the fact is, there is enough things wrong with your direct vicinity and i'm not saying to that scale i'm just saying in in the words of jordan peterson for one your room's probably messy that's one problem to solve may not be the most important problem in the world but it's the first problem and it literally is outside your just after your feet when you get out of bed and if you live your life with the implication of trying to solve each problem as it comes to you that's within your control to do so you are literally radiating good things and not in a again airy fairy way i mean literally if you are if you live a life where you are organized and you are polite and you are managing your time and your money and you're you're putting money towards things that you believe is good but you're doing it in a you know localized way you are spreading that good in a very clinical and straightforward manner and that's that's the best you can do yeah in ideal situation humanity would would go in that direction but then but then you wouldn't have any crazy artists you know, who like do crazy fucking shit that like attract and and I don't know if you, I mean if you look at YouTube, I don't know if you want that. <laughs> look at what that turned out. Well, no, I think- when, when I'm subscribed firmly to Gus Johnson and enjoy every video he puts up, you're right. I probably don't want a clinical world of boring righteousness. But no, there's yeah, you know what I mean. I, I don't I don't mean like sanitize the world from from all problems. It's just yeah. it, it, I just think. I, the the real message I'm trying to get across here is that I I'm not trying to solve the world's problems, and I I don't think I have the right or the ability or anything. And it may sound like I'm waxing on here, like I'm some kind of philosopher, but this is just my thoughts. It's just what you've asked me, so I'm telling you. But my yeah, yeah. my point is, I'm I'm not I'm not espousing this. I'm not going onto YouTube and making videos. I'm not writing articles because, as far as I'm concerned, if I live a like, if I live a good life and we have a chat here and someone listens to this and they decide to do something good, then great, and that's fine. It's like but I just nobody has that ability, and I think that it's 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 this thing where everyone assumes they can be like they see a YouTuber and go, I could do that. That's just being on YouTube, or I can whatever. It, it, you start assuming that just because someone else can do it, you can do it too, or just because it's possible that you can do it. They're very subtly different things, and rather than trying to change the world, just try to fucking. Write a good short story and put it in the internet. <laughs> you know, just do do a small thing and just do it well and live your life well and just enjoy it and don't try to, you know, be an activist for anything. There's no point in being an activist for anything. Like, if if you want good things to happen, solve your own problems in your life and that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like I half agree, but like yeah, for sure. Like you definitely want to like focus on yourself and improve yourself. Like I came, I came to that realization, you know, like uh, a few years, like a year. Well, it's it's been an ongoing thing, but like, yeah, 
like I was trying to figure out like what what am I doing like why what's the point like how do I have meaning where do I find meaning and I realized that like at the very foundation at the very core you know, the where I can draw meaning from if, if if from nothing else it would be from the fact that like every day that passes I would get I, I would work on being a little better than I was the day before. You know, I, I, would, I, would, I would work on being a little better at, like, um, you know, coding. I would get a little better at, like, learning languages. I would get a little better at, like, you know, being a good friend to people and a good person. Like, that's, that, that was my realization. Like, like if, at, if, at, if at all, like, if there's, if there's one thing that, that I could that I could draw meaning from it was that, yeah, and it was um, you know, and it was interesting, and I, I just yeah, I just think that like, I think VR has a, I think you're underselling VR <laughs> a lot, but I think you're you're definitely I've, I'm really open to your ideas. I'm really trying to like, like you can, I hope, yeah, I, I'm really really trying to like, embrace your ideas and like come uh, sort of like uh come to an understanding and and and, and yeah it's yeah well i, I think this is again this, this may be anticlimactic on the vr thing but i think this is it's the same thing right like i got into vr on the sheer hyperbolic enthusiasm that it's going to change the world and the way i use a computer and how it's going to be the best thing ever and that was great and enthusiasm was great and there's nothing wrong with being excited about something but after three years of watching it take this magical conceptual idea where there's a bunch of us on a subreddit sharing small demos. And by the way, shout out to still my favorite VR developer ever who hasn't been doing it in a while is, is uh, Teddy, who used to make those little dumb demos with the, with the Hydra. Teddy OK was his, his tag. And it's just because it was someone who just did it for fun and made like five or six fun demos. And they kind of – someone was – really got me excited because they were doing fun things for themselves proving the point that it can be done and that's great but because i was putting it on a pedestal just like we said earlier like its own little deity i was i was saying vr is the future it's going to change the world there's no place to go from there except to be disappointed when it isn't that every year that it isn't that and it's all it's, it's good to to dream and visualize where it's going to go but if you set your expectations to VR has great potential and you can enjoy each thing that comes out, you can actively enjoy each thing that comes out. You don't need to be disappointed by expecting more to happen or, or that it's not where you want it to be. If you just engage with it for what it is, it is a piece of technology which is slowly improving over time, has so much great potential, is a fun thing. I can share my enthusiasm with it without assuming it's going to change the world yet. And that's why I think this whole thing I was saying before about it'll trickle into our lives. There was a time when the iPad was considered a dumb concept. It was a thing that was like, why would anyone want a tablet thing? That's stupid. Until now, most people have tablets. Like there's, you can go to the creation of 
the laser. It's one of the funniest. If you, I'm not going to go into it here, but like the, the origin story of the laser being created. It was called the um, the invention without a problem, or something like that. It was the idea was that you it was made before anyone knew what it was. Now it represents the entirety of how data functions for us. There's no there's no point in, in pedestaling anything, including even VR, as this idea. Just because I'm not as emphatic as I used to be in the first year of it, which was new technology, doesn't mean I don't still really pine for the idea of how great it can be. I'm just being realistic that it's not there yet. And there's no point in being disappointed every time it isn't when I can instead praise every cool new thing that comes out. I'm really happy for the Quest, and it's the first time a headset has excited me in a while. And I can only do that because I didn't set my expectations too high. It doesn't hit everything I want, but it's so much better than the gear was. And if I can just keep seeing it as in progress over time, I can maintain a consistent lower excitement level rather than have this fall I had in the first generation where I got really hyped and then it just didn't live up to where I wanted. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, trust me, I'm not underselling VR and I don't see it as a waste or I don't see it as not living up to expectation. I've just tweaked my perception of what that expectation is. And I think it will become a big deal that will become part of everyone's lives eventually. I've just tweaked my timescale and tweaked what I think it can be used for. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit about the podcast. What was, um, I mean, you know, what, what happened to the podcast? Are you, are you guys still doing it or what, uh, how, how, well, first of all, what made you want to start a podcast? And then give me a quick like rundown of like, mm -hmm. how, how was it doing a podcast? And what what happened? Well, the podcast started with... Um, a VR podcast, mind you. One of the best yes, VR, VR podcasts podcast. out there. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll take umbrage with that one. But yeah, sure. I, I'm glad you liked it if you did. But the, it started actually just in a Skype group, a bunch of people talking. And I just... I just didn't... The thing is, right? Before VR podcasts like yours and mine happened it's not like people weren't having these discussions we were all we were already doing them we were already having these conversations and talking about the potential we were just doing it in pocketed groups and at this stage we were basically doing it just in the form of text in skype and i just remember i don't even know what the exact topic was but i think it was i don't know some new demo would come out or something and I, we were just excitedly talking about it and i just went we should start a podcast. And I, I said it as a like fun aside and not even to a person. I said it to a Skype group of like 15 people. We should just do a podcast. Somebody who, who wants to talk about this stuff with me. And it just happened to be Matt and Bob were like, yeah, we'll do it. And then like surprise to me, they said, how about this? And Bob being like endlessly organized said, how about this time? Are you already yeah, I'll do it. I'll record it. And it's just like, it went from me saying one line to it happening. And then we just did re recording and, and the fact that it rambled on for like two hours and that became our format because we didn't script anything. It just it was just literally raw passion talking about ideas. And again, it's just like I said earlier that what happened was we just kept doing that. And there's only so much enthusiasm you can keep having when it goes from being fun demos people share to being sequestered behind corporate barriers and they're, they're hit that point around the Facebook acquisition where regardless of whether it's good or bad for the future of VR, it just became more secretive. And it's like, it's just the way technology goes. Like it used to be something developed in front of a community and that's got its goods and bads. We can see every small tweak and change. Like I still laugh at that time. Palmer said that he'll never use Fresnel lenses. They're dumb. They don't, they're not a good idea because of uh, the chromatic aberration and then fast forward to the rift using Fresnel lenses. Like it's, you know, 
because he was thinking it up as he went and there was there was a level of sort of creativity with the community and as time went by it just became more i don't want to say more corporate because again that sounds very hippie-ish i don't mean that i just mean it it started to become how do we apply this practically as opposed to this pipe dream mentality and the unfortunate truth of that is there wasn't as much of that as we'd like so what happened is businesses started playtesting in private people stopped having things to play with there's less hardware coming out on a regular basis and it just trickled out and to the point where I, I was already losing interest at one stage but then on top of that i started getting practical programming work specifically in vr and so in a weird way i left the community to work in the community but doing exactly the same thing that got me out of it in the first place which is i started becoming one of those people in the background working on stuff that to be made as opposed to talking about it and sharing enthusiasm so it's that's what it is i guess ah, that's yeah like what did you what did you learn about yourself doing doing the podcast well i don't know i just think that it's again i, I isolated two things in my head i realized over time we started talking about brls and started just talking about people and that kind of became this whole thing of oh. That it's we just like like I mean look at this we were talking for ages and we've covered a million and one topics and it's great and we're like VR is the thing we're passionate about but I think it's this it was this focusing on something like this laser pointer thing of it must be this and we talk about this thing and it's like we've only got so much enthusiasm for one thing but why do we have to limit that when we can just enjoy things and talk about stuff we like and I was kind of I felt at one point I was sort of trying to force enthusiasm for something and I realized. I don't want to be a downer and start hating on VR, but I also don't want to fake enthusiasm for it either. So I need to recalibrate where my level is at and what I'm doing with it. And then as I was getting worked on it, it was like I had this, like you said, I was having way back earlier, we were talking about how I had to reconcile this idea that it's giving me money. VR is able, is, is working in VR is giving me the finances to be able to fulfill my rest of my habits of technology, including VR. So I'm working in VR to buy VR headsets, to work in VR to buy VR, <laughs> to buy VR headsets. And it's fine, but at the same time, I'm buying them and losing interest in the idea because there's not that much content for it. So it's this weird cycle. And again, I realized that rather than trying to force this thing, I just... I just decided to to be true to the actual enthusiasm level I had and just try to, you know, live to that. And separately from all of that, just work makes you busy and you start doing it less and it's hard to schedule timing. And if we're getting more practical, there's a, there's a, a number of, you know, confluence of reasons why it's sort of petered out. But I guess, but for me, the real point was I just, I didn't like being, like I, in the early, in the early episodes, I was the sarcastic, gruff one who, was passionate about VR but was cynical and I think that was a good place to be and as time went by I lost the passion and was just cynical and I didn't like that and I remember this one particular podcast we did very late in the game and uh, we'd actually been gone for a few months and we did one podcast and I read a comment on something I think it was it was on Road to VR or something where someone had commented on the podcast we did and it's like these guys they don't know what they're talking about they're just you know jaded whatever something like that. and i was just i, I kind of laughed at that because i i can i could have seen myself writing that comment years before but the, but my brain just went to 
dude, I've been doing this for three years. I mean, it's hard to keep the same enthusiasm. And like every every time you see these conversations of, have you thought about using VR in in you know for surgery? Yes, yes, we've had that conversation. <laughs> have you thought about using VR? Yes, we have. We've had literally every conversation you could have about VR because we've been talking about this every day for three years. Of course, we've had that conversation. And it's like, and it's like, it's not even I mean it to be mean. I'm not trying to like shut down someone else's enthusiasm. It's yeah. just how can I maintain your level of brand new wide-eyed enthusiasm for something that I three years ago I had this conversation and explored it in infinite dimensions you know and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a bad thing I shouldn't feel bad for not having the same level of enthusiasm I should be able to enjoy what enthusiasm I have now and explore it more practically and I think that's part of the power of getting into the community I can actually I don't have to theory craft anymore. I can just make things. <laughs> I can see the numbers and I can see how things are working. And so, I mean, it's not as exciting and it's not as fun as that open enthusiasm. But you know what? It's it's rewarding in its own way. And I think I can, yeah. you know. I, like I mentioned earlier, you're you're in the trenches, but on on the on the other side, like right, like right in there. Like it's um, yeah. Where it's, I I was thinking to myself, I was like, holy shit! Like I've been doing this for five years why the fuck am I doing this? <laughs> and I, and I've been little by little coming closer and closer to a resolve that like, it's a, it's a, it's a different, there's different factors, but one of them is sort of just this fascination with the human beings at the epicenter of this thing. Like um, the fact that people were willing to throw themselves into this, you know, without thinking a lot, or or maybe they did, but they threw themselves anyways. It just made me like feel like there's this momentum that I wanted to capture, that I wanted to understand, that I thought that people in the future would would be wondering about. You know how we wonder about like uh, you know people who go to who went to World War through World War Two, and like you wonder like what was going through the mind of that man that was about to like step into like a, a war zone. You know, like, well, well, what were their goals and aspirations? Who were they? And so, like, and so, like, I think I sound crazy as fuck, but I think that VR, the birth of VR is as momentous and as a big moment for humanity as fucking the invention of the nuclear bomb. I know, I, I know, I know I sound crazy. I know I sound crazy. Along with a bunch of other things like AI and CRISPR, right? Like, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a bunch of things but like but because of that because i found that in, i i thought that there was this importance i i i wanted to like capture the 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 humanity behind the technology and i thought i started asking myself this question well like 20 years from now people are gonna wonder like well what the fuck were they thinking who were they what were their goals and aspirations and motivations their dreams like who were these people not just like what they thought about the Fresno lenses and the screen door effect, you know, that stuff is, that matters now, but like, what's really going to matter later on, 20 years from now is like, you know, that, that human side. And so that being said, what's going to happen is in the year 2038, you're going to get an email from me. Um, and it's going to say, hey, Jason, here's a, here's a message from you to the future that you recorded back in the back in november 2018 so um so yeah i i leave the floor to you to send yourself a message 
to the Jason of 20 years from now? Oh, boy. <laughs> There's no point. That guy will never listen to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to send the email anyway. I'm going to send you that fucking email 20 years from now. <laughs> so regardless, whether you listen to it or not, I mean, this is why... It, yeah this is sort of what's driving me i feel like this is there's something here that i want to like that i want to capture and i want to know well yeah i want to throw you I, in there. I, I, the thing is I, I understand i understand where that passion comes from because i think that like so so you just you, you describe vr as like this this origin concept that we're at the we're at the vanguard of this creation of something big but the thing is right and this isn't to diminish it in vr the thing is this happens all of the time with every new thing and I, I love it. It's fascinating. Like I, I, I just recently watched um, a Lindsay Ellis video on the origin of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. The the whole the the, the origin of how how that Disney movie came about and all the people and, and how it started with a guy who was in love with architecture and how that came to be where we know it. And all these kind of crazy things. And like every single one of these things has a story. Like right down to programming, we're talking about is my area. People look at programming and they don't think that the first programmer was a woman, you know, like the first ever program language was made by Ada Lovelace. And there's like a whole history of the 1840s about when this first programming language is. And you can go and read about it and, and learn about Babbage's analytical engine and all these cool concepts that were the, the origin to where we are now. And that's just one thing. And there's everything you enjoy has this amazing story of all the people that came together to make it. So I agree with you. It's important that we are here and we're talking about it and we're part of this amazing thing and so i don't mean to diminish that but what i'm saying is there is millions of these and i love them all and they're fascinating and you can go like those video essays about the origin of of how mario got made and 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 the 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 idea of donkey kong and how it was originally kind of a, a was it a Popeye thing? And there's all these different stories about how certain games got made because of licensing issues in the background. And there's so much fascinating history to how we got to where we are. And VR is one of them. And I don't mean it's better or it's worse. I'm just saying it is another thing and it's great to be part of it. But to, to put things in, in, in perspective is that before, a lot of us know Cymatic Bruce as the guy who got us into VR. He was certainly, for me, the guy who I used to watch on YouTube and loved the videos about how he's, he was learning programming. And that's what got me into making my first VR experience. But before that, he was a legend in the Dance Dance Revolution area. He was like, he used to do those, you know, those, like, dress up and actually, like, turn his back to the game and do it perfectly with a choreographed dance. That's the stuff he used to do. He, he had a whole life with a whole history of a cool other environment he was in. And and uh, Kyle, who we know from Rev and Kyle podcast, before he was a VR persona, he was a big deal in the Android space with Android hacking and the XDA community and, and all of that stuff. So... VR is another community we get to be part of and enjoy, but I don't think it for me it doesn't define the thing forever that's going to change the world because I'm going to be I, I want to be at ground zero for the origin of VR, but I hope I also get to be at ground zero for the origin of AR. And that doesn't diminish my enjoyment of VR. It just means that as technology grows and more things happen, I get to be part of so much of this emerging technology history. And I don't think I have to pick favorites. Yeah. I, I just wanna I just want to make sure I, because the thing is, is, like, there are there are millions of these shows and types of media, but like, but this one's for you, twenty years from now, 
So did you send yourself a message? I don't know if you like sent sent yourself that message yet. <laughs> Sorry, I did, I did get. A, I, I kind of gone a bit rant. So I guess yeah, that's I, my first lesson: is, is le- learn how to be more concise, Jason. That's your first message. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I guess I guess the only thing I have to hope for my future self is that I haven't lost my desire to self improve, and that whatever my relationship is to my technology and the job I have. And my hope for the future is that it's still cohesive and forward-facing, and that there isn't that, that I haven't become jaded or cynical again because I worked very hard to work out of those traits, and I hope I don't fall back into them. So that's that's all I want for my future. I love that. I um, and I wish you the best of luck, and um, I hope we can, uh, yeah, share share more spaces where we have more conversations. This is a great conversation. I. Um, is there anything else in the recesses of your mind that you'd like to that you'd like to put out before we we bring things to a close? Uh, I guess I guess we might as well wrap up on the the practical end, which is uh, like I said, my my website is is darkersmile.com, and I uh, one thing is a personal passion of mine. If anyone's interested, is I I love programming, and I I don't mean just as like a, a boring technical profession. I actually. I, I read a million books on it, and, and the idea of software architecture is actually a passionate discussion that I would, I would just as I talk about VR or talk about all the other stuff we said, I could rant for 10 years about the various different exciting, boring to other people aspects of programming. And so if you're interested in programming as effectively, I don't like to use the term art form because, again, a little bit hokey, but I just mean it as a as a craft, as a thing that you enjoy, uh, I have a blog up there where I write about programming and how to improve and write good quality code and how to be a, a good citizen in the space of programming and how to how to manage things well. So if you like that kind of thing, that's something I do on the side. Um, and other than that, uh, myself and Fire Panda Studios, who is Nick's baby, we, we do contracting work. So if anyone has anything they want done, give us a shout and we might be able to help you enter vr or something to that effect <laughs> i see what you did there sir uh, uh jason i know uh for a fact that you are and always have been and always will be no matter no matter even if you love ar more than vr later down the line you're always going to be a scholar a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality and um it's so i i god it's so cliches or like i'm so tacky i say that all the time but like honestly thank you it was a really good conversation I'm, i appreciate your time and um yeah thank you I, I sure. really, thanks for having me I'm, I'm glad we did this and hopefully we can do it again